0: Check out
1: transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey
0: everyone, welcome back. Remap sports and sports-adjacent podcast that sets out to disprove the notion that people with lives dedicated to pixels jumping across the screen can't also be unhealthily interested in what nerds condescendingly refer to as sports ball every Super Bowl. Rob, I start off every episode with a new question, this time from a reader named Evan. As someone who appreciates Cincinnati's dedication to having at least one team that looks kind of promising sometimes, lately it's the Bengals, sometimes it's the Red, and currently our MLS team FC Cincinnati seems promising. I love sticking with our teams here since no matter what, there's always something to watch. Anyway, since you've been talking about Cincinnati chili lately, what additional topping would you add to a theoretical six-way? As you may be aware, Cincinnati chili spaghetti is usually served as a three-way chili, spaghetti, cheese, four-way, add onions or beans, or five-way, add onions and beans. But where else can the way format go? For me, I'm a big fan of blue ash chili six-way with fried jalapenos.
2: But what else could you add to chili spaghetti? Wow, our podcast Burgeoning Love Affair with the idea of Cincinnati, a place that I have <laughs> never been, I don't think, is is really something. Uh, the fact that, Patrick, inevitably we are marching towards somehow trying to get a trip, a fact finding mission to Cincinnati classified as a business expense.
0: I'm engineering it. Rob, I am laying all of the groundwork for the IRS, for the tax accountants. Yep. I, like, No, I our could. sports podcast
2: required <laughs> us to go to Cincinnati. Uh, and eat at multiple uh, Skyline chili, chili places. places. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the 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 six way. I don't know. I mean, it seems it seems like it's pretty pretty loaded. Like we're approaching. <laughs> like it's like kind of asking, what would you add to your seven layer dip for a theoretical eighth layer? And I'm like, oh, you oh, oh I don't know.
0: We turn this into an like with, with with how would the spaghetti's work with the with
2: with the yeah, nachos we're doing the with the I mean, hard? We're just doing the Taco <laughs> Town ad. Yep, I mean, sure, fuck it. Yeah, put put your spaghetti on a nacho and just fit that off a plate. I mean, it has to be a nacho. Is it still a nacho if it like has to fry up and be like a quarter inch thick so that it can actually bear the weight and cut through the spaghetti and
0: <laughs> the layers? It's of, really just slices yeah. of
2: bread. Like at this point okay. that you. <laughs>
3: But does it have to be spaghetti? or could you use a different pasta form. No, nope. like if See, you have little, oh. ma- if you have different little macaroni's, you could easily scoop those with a nacho chip.
2: I think I think you're right, but I think at that point it ceases to be a Cincinnati chili and ceases to be and becomes some other like cryptid chili. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the answer is like fuck it. Meatballs is that redundant with the chili? Yeah. Don't care. Like does it seem like does it seem like a meatball could go here? You can add a little more to that meatball. You know, fuck it. Why not? Maybe hot dogs. Don't know. It seems <laughs> at this point the format, the, the Cincinnati Chili seems both forgiving and yet beyond redeeming. Ah, uh, it's a generous lover, Rob, the Cincinnati
0: Chili will accept will accept all onto uh, its plate. Uh that other voice you heard is Rowan Kaiser, critic at large, host of the Total Massacre podcast, where they dissect breakdown action movies like most recently, Lead of Battle Angel, underrated film. Or is it not? Did you
2: did you not like that movie? I I, I, really I like liked
3: it that. more the second time. Okay, all right. There we there go. has been a reappraisal
2: uh, of that movie.
3: Yes, yes. And we got one of the main people to re, who who was doing reappraisals of that it was uh, Esther uh, Rosenberg, and she she was a great great guest. I want I wanted her back, but she she wrote a thing about how Alita had uh, was like one of the perfect. Summations of gender euphoria from like seeing yourself in your proper body, uh, which was definitely not a thing that I was really noticing the first time I saw it, even though this was after I had transitioned. But uh, yeah, we got we got some really good insights from her and just a generally interesting discussion about a movie that's a pretty fascinating mess. We also had our good friend Brian Smalley, Chef Lou Boo, uh, as resident resident anime and manga expert. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, yeah, that was a great time.
0: Excellent. Well, we have you on because we have a whole mess of topics. Like Rob, we could be we could spin a wheel with the with the topics. We'd be we, here we all day. Here, we could, um, and we won't. But uh, Ron, I wanted to give it to you. I want to throw to you. We have a bunch of NBA off-season storylines. We have the complete shit show with college football and the Pac-12, and like the shocking degree that. College football is completely dominated by TV deals in a way that I did not fully appreciate until recently. Um, Messi and the MLS and sort of like the, the dominance of a a seemingly aging player, the women's world cup, which is still ongoing. Uh, or you can just talk about, like, the Chicago Bears, you know, like, uh, whatever uh, topic you'd like to go to next, I'm,
3: uh, the floor, the floor is yours. Well, all of those, except for oddly messy, that, 20 years ago, that would have been <laughs> the biggest thing in my life, but all of those, except for messy, uh, and I'm sorry to the I'll Chicago take it. Bears. The Chicago Bears will take it, to not be last on
0: that list, that's fine uh, with me. <laughs> the
3: Chicago Bulls, would, yeah, the, the NBA and women's soccer and tennis are, like, my three things, and I also have, like, a mild obsession with following college football news but not actually like watching any of it uh so well you yeah, uh, gotta the like instability
2: the front- of college football and the sudden collapse of institutions that seemed pretty durable has to like bring back strong antioch vibes as well like this has to be <laughs> ah they're playing my song again <sighs> oh
3: <laughs> Yes. R- Rob and I are also uh, longtime mutuals and friends and podcasters, and Rob knows all about my time at Antioch College. Well, I don't think anyone knows all about my time at Antioch College. But, um, <laughs> my college collapsed two years after I graduated, and I spent a year attempting to save it. And uh, for all intents and purposes from the outside, yes, we did. We th- we saved it. It's great. Everything's perfect. Um from the inside, uh, I, I have I have questions. But <laughs> what does it mean to
0: save a, co- a whole
2: yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. you're cracking open the, the Antioch uh, arc. Well,
0: I, gotta, I need a brief summation. I, I like I need to know a little. You can't just say you saved a college.
2: And okay. not tell
3: me what that means. OK,
2: you got to go back to like <laughs> so Antioch.
3: <laughs> so it starts. Yeah, right. So it starts with the crusade. Well, actually, no, it starts in the Roman era. Where, uh, the college, the college. So the, the western, the western part of the Roman or the eastern part of the Roman Empire before Constantinople was built needed a new capital. They chose one of the cities named Antioch. Um, no, uh, the there was <laughs> Antioch College is a historical institution uh, for 150 plus years that expanded dramatically in the 60s and 70s and uh, added Antioch University as like a corporate layer around it to organize all of the expanded aspects of it. The expanded aspects of it got too big for their britches and decided, oh, this college doesn't actually make as much money as we do. Why don't we murder it? So they did.
2: (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. What are the expanded branches? like?
3: Uh,
0: like athletics and other institutions opportunities like whoa
3: yeah some of them were but by and large they became like adult learning commuter schools uh there's one in la one in wait that begins to sound like for-profit education territory Close. I don't think that it was like directly, you know, uh, University of Phoenix shit, but nonprofit
2: still covers a lot of ground for sure. Yes.
3: Um, There's one in Seattle. There's one in New England. There was one like directly next to the campus in Ohio. The franchising of education. Right. Yeah. They they sort of accidentally franchised it for for decades beforehand. (laughs) But
2: then they're like, what are we doing with this small liberal arts piece of
3: shit? Yeah. What are we doing with this small (laughs) residential liberal arts college that you have to pay for students to live there and upkeep around them and you have more than one building? Like, this is insane. Why are we paying for that? (laughs) So they decided to shut that down. I worked with several other alumni in an attempt to first stop them from shutting it down and then to buy it and get it Maintain it under its own independent auspices. Hang on,
2: now that sound that might sound like real. We are all in on Antioch, and I think we need a little bit of the Antioch vibe. Rowan, what is Antioch's motto?
3: Be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. Forest Be ashamed man.
2: to die mm-hmm. until you have won some victory for humanity. That is you. Like that is what you matriculate to. <laughs>
3: Uh, Horace Mann said this while potentially dying of pneumonia at the first graduation. <laughs> he was the college's first president. This, this is a guy who's like famous in every textbook as the man who brought public education to America. And like my historian friend at the college, the Antioch archivist is like, yeah, he probably said that because he was talking about himself. He was depressed that he was sick and dying and. Uh, hadn't actually achieved anything. Um so yeah, that I think this is a good state. That's what I
0: think about when I think about the fact that I haven't had Cincinnati Chili yet. Yes. And and like I just won't actually have felt like I've contributed to humanity so, until I can have, until I can have a six way. <laughs> so I
3: have two ways to tie this back to the conversation. First we have first we have Cincinnati. The only time I've been to Cincinnati this isn't actually true. The first time I went to Cincinnati, Antioch's about an hour and a half from Cincinnati. Uh we were after the, after the closure of the college was announced and they discovered that the alumni of a idiosyncratic, tiny, well, I'd say well loved, but also well hated institution were very upset by this. Uh, the board of trustees held like an emergency meeting in Cincinnati to, to take questions. So I and a bunch of other alums went to this meeting and We're in this like completely generic conference room and these, uh, Antioch University trustees have hired like a bunch of plainclothes police officers to sit in this room with a bunch of, you know, old hippies basically and these like. Six foot five dudes with shaved heads are just like scanning the room the entire time because they're terrified that we might break out in protest or something. Uh So that was my first experience with Cincinnati. Then I visited for an after- afternoon trip with a friend once. I did not have Cincinnati chili as at this point I had stopped eating mammal. Uh mm-hmm, So that mm-hmm. was that this is this is a conversation that's difficult for me uh on those terms. But. I am uh,
2: sure I am sure you can just take the meat out of the Cincinnati chili and your good that's I I am confident there's some sort of you can just you just beans only it's still it's still a Cincinnati chili beans and
3: spaghetti noodles you know just a classic I I mean I'm sure there's perfectly good meat substitutes for this kind of chili yeah. sludge like you don't necessarily want that in a burger <laughs> But, wow! Just a just a drive by on the Cincinnati chili. <laughs> I chili is chili is best when it's sludge. This is a compliment. Okay, uh, all right, thank you. <laughs> this is much like the
0: deep dish pizza conversation. Where you feel, there's nuance to the way people describe uh, these foods. I'm I, okay, good. I I, I love agree the with idea of you, idea you just
2: like quadruple the cost of your plate of Cincinnati chili by like putting seitan on it and you're <laughs> like,
3: oh, fuck. How did this become a thirty dollar dish? I I think you'll find that it's always a $30 dish in your heart and heartburn. Um, Yeah. You're you're paying Mm. some way or other. Mm. Um, The other thing thing is that, you know, like college football, this is a situation where there was a corporate entity controlling things that was like, hey, wait a minute. Sure, you have histories and traditions and alumni who uh, love everything about what you've done you have like a very very powerful bond with whatever but what if we made 15 percent more money by doing something completely different and pissing all those people off uh so it's a very 21st century story in that respect and yeah this is this is sort of what's happening with college football where history is just Gone like I grew up on the west coast, the pack 10. And then, like, I guess they changed the name, it was the pack 10 when as I was growing up, it was the pack eight slightly before that. When the I was Pac- growing up, Big 10 meant something, yeah. They <laughs> were like, There's 10 schools, <laughs> welcome to the Midwest, yeah. Uh, and now it's the pack four, that's that's a little weird. Uh, now. These schools are going to be flying 3,000 miles to have a lacrosse game. That's a little weird, uh, but they think they can make somewhat more money by attaching themselves. to I these had not even TV considered DVDs. that. The, the, oh
2: yeah, the, yeah. The, the non like the non football and basketball sports are also going to have like ridiculous travel schedules now because like, it's all Division One, baby.
3: Yeah, I, th- this is like there are some. Analysts who are like saying even with the money, these schools will lose money simply on travel because there's no way they're going to make enough money back from these sports. These are not like massive spectator sports. Uh, they're there to, you know, kind of well, make the school look good. And not to make the accelerationist that, but, argument.
2: But is the minute they just like completely go mask off and they're like, you know what? You're right. We can't afford to continue subsidizing lacrosse and whatever and fencing or whatever. And they just cut all that, and the only thing that's left is, like, the revenue sports?
0: Well, I mean, especially because college sports is itself underwritten by uh, the cable industry. And the cable industry is itself shut, like, on on a downward descent. Like, streaming is not in a great place. But the cable industry, like, the cord-cutting story is happening. Like, eventually, these massive – like, this might be one of the last massive checks handed out in college sports before – you're looking to the streamers as more realistic options. And like, they kind of set up like what happened here it was like the PAC 12 had negotiated a deal with Apple and like Apple's whole story in sports right now is kind of a, its own interesting aside that ties into at Messi and the MLS and and MLB to some degree. Um Essentially like the way it normally works is like we're signing with Fox sports and they just hand you big ass check that's divvied up amongst the schools and that's it, and you get the broadcast rights for ten years or whatever they negotiate. Apple uh, is is negotiating like essentially kind of partnerships with different, like with like partner with MLS, and then when they partner with the MLB, they can change the UI and like how how it looks. And they essentially had offered some sort of version of that to the Pac-12 alongside. Hey, we'll give you a minimum check, but beyond that, it's based on like subscription milestones, and you might end up making. Way more than you'd get anywhere else if the subscription milestones go along. So like, you know, uh, rising tide, raise all boats, and including shitloads of money. And like some of the biggest schools said, uh, I think we could just immediately get a bigger check if we just destroyed all this history and ran somewhere else. And then there were just waves of teams leaving and we're, we're left with the Pac-12 essentially collapsing.
3: One of the presidents, I don't remember I don't remember if it was Oregon or Washington, but he said like literally, what do you want us you want us to be selling Girl Scout cookies? That's not what we do. Uh, for the idea of like getting these subscriptions up. Like this is this is kind of ridiculous. And yeah, it it is sort of ridiculous, but sports is like the only consistent moneymaker on television anymore. Yeah. Uh that's like <clears throat> The entire sports industry, everything that you see on television, all these things that you're like, oh, this is a thing that lots of people love and is popular and whatever. It's consistently underwritten by some kind of shell game, some kind of Ponzi scheme. Like it's cable subscriptions, it's cryptocurrency, it's, you know, the Astros having Enron Field, like sports is a way for all of these it's really hard to get 50,000 people in and out of an arena every night. <laughs> it's really hard to get the rest of the world to care about what's going on in this local arena. And like, they're just constantly trying to find the next big thing. And these next big things are like, Oh, sports is a thing that lots of people watch sports is a thing with lots of history. We will get credibility just by adding our name to these things. So let's all go to the crypto.com arena and watch a Lakers game. And that proves that crypto must be real and you know go to ftx arena in miami and they've scrubbed the floors of all the ftx verbiage because <laughs> yeah you know. so you go through the history of sports and it's like there's a bubble underneath underwriting every part of it basically forever and i don't know that's part of the fun kind of uh as long as you don't care too much but if you happened to care about you know washington state playing washington which a lot of people in my area do i'm in portland uh or oregon state playing oregon like yeah you're fucked college is all about rivalries like even more so
0: than like the nfl um well at least as an out from an outsider's perspective well
3: oregon is playing rutgers
2: instead now
0: yeah yeah
2: rutgers (laughs) like an historically disastrous uh, conference switch, uh, like just, a, just an institution that's always uh, sort of like stuck in sort of a bottom feeder role. Correct. Like, I, I think I just yeah. read a piece like this piece about this where they they, they sold high uh, and they 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 took they took their shot and they've sort of been, you know, relegated. Uh, to to bottom feeder status for for ages because uh, of some of this like you know we're gonna you know we're gonna go for the go for the brass ring, but yeah th- this is like the other the other part of this that that I find interesting is is it's like I mean in a lot of ways like the NCAA and Division one schools have given up the ghost a long time ago about pretending that there's any amateurism left at the you know in in their revenue generating sports, but what seems different here is that part of part of what's happening with these conference realignments is the conferences are now competing to stack up like viable athletics programs who are going to generate lots of interesting inter intra conference rivalry that, that you know that you will effectively have Quality pro teams up and down these these major these major conferences, which is why they are you know they are interested in some schools, not others. Uh, it's you know it's, it's why they they weren't necessarily so bent on like we couldn't possibly do this without Stanford. Stanford optional for for a lot of these for a lot of these conferences. Uh, Cal Bears optional. Uh, USC less so. Want USC, and so you know you get these you get these realignments where you do sort of you shred any sort of geographic affinity that exists. And it just turns into, we piled a bunch of like powerhouse programs into a conference so that we can effectively throw together a pro sports league with no pros.
3: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's another thing that's sort of an undercurrent here is that uh, after decades of hemming and hawing and, claiming that the student-athlete was a thing. Uh, That's not actually a thing. That was entirely propaganda invented by the NCAA. Uh, Athletes are now allowed to get paid. They're allowed to get money for endorsements. The schools don't even have to pay them. But the the big football schools and the big basketball schools have like their richest alumni gathering into groups and saying, yeah, we're going to give $100,000 to everyone who's on the football team, or we're going to give a million bucks to, you know, this one high schooler who's supposed to be really good if she comes onto our basketball team. And it is striking the degree, th- but it feels to me also
2: like the name image, uh, name image likeness thing yeah seems like it has also stymied the momentum for actually forcing schools to you know pay their athletes
3: yeah it's it's sort of like there was there's actually a labor issue here where the athletes are labor and especially when they're flying across country for three thousand miles consistently uh, and Capitalism didn't want to pay them because capitalism doesn't want to pay the labor. So they, they masked it in this, uh, this glow of student athlete propaganda. And that was always kind of bullshit. And now it's like the, the glow is gone. There's nothing left there. But what has taken its place is just this sort of rampant backroom dealing that the capitalists love almost even more of. Now we don't even have to pay these people under the table. We can just cut the damn checks and give the give it to them and like may the richest school win. Uh so you have schools that are like have famously massive boosters like Texas a AM or or Oregon. Uh they used to have to like build up the schools via gifts, official gifts to like a better weight room, a better a better stadium
2: you get a building with your name on it, yeah and yes. that's that's
0: that's the way that you
2: get the authority in the which is how you get and which Those ridiculously luxe like i i, I want to say like saw like the the oregon locker room yes was that the one with like an every like player's rest area has an ipad built into <laughs> the, the bench <laughs>
3: Yeah. And, you know, that's because Phil Knight of Nike basically runs the Oregon sports program and has turned it into his personal, uh, not his personal, but Nike's like college sports training ground. They they train Nike on that. They don't, it's, they also probably get some athletes out of it. But like, you look at, you look at the Oregon football team and how they have like different uniforms every game. That's because Nike is just sitting there going golden green. What can we do with this? Let's roll. And... This is like has been how the system works, and now the system has had the mask taken off, which is good. But there's still, you know, monsters under that mask. It's not. Uh, this is not a system that is like really going to be working for the actual players and for uh, for the academic institutions. This is why. This is why my solution to all this is actually the accelerationist one, Rob, where what makes college football especially great are all these regional rivalries, all this like local history, intersectional, the southern southeastern conference, the the Midwestern Conference, the Western Conference, like all these all these aspects of it with so much history and so much tradition. But these Institutions also really, really, really want money from getting football in wherever they can. They should spin the, spin the football teams off. And license them through the schools so that you still have like the excitement of Alabama playing Auburn, but the University of Alabama just gets ke- cut a check to have that, that name and likeness used. And the players are just employees. And, you know, maybe they set up an academic deal where the players can still go to the college. Yeah, the, that those things are all negotiable, but like, yeah, this is what I think is, yeah, have this just be a thing that has the, 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 NFL, like the NFL,
0: but through collegiate sports, like
3: right, essentially, the, like. Uh, go through the geography that exists, go through the history that exists, use that. And instead they're doing the complete opposite. They're trying to make the NFL just by having, okay, we have teams on the West. We have teams on the East. We have teams in the Midwest teams in the South. Everything's good. Let's just have them play each other all the time. And it's, you know, it's becoming a fascinating worst of every possible world. And, you know, as the cable bubble collapses or if cable doesn't collapse, uh, because like streaming is entirely a house of cards and hopefully the writers and actors strikes are things that are going to end up exposing this for what it is but if it's a house of cards then these companies are going to not be throwing around money anymore um yeah and so i think so yeah to, to finish off that thought, like MLS, it makes sense to go with a- Apple because MLS is a small league trying to do something new and get to, you know, younger fans, more connected fans and so on. College football is the complete opposite of that. College football is all about, you know, alumni for 70, from 70 years prior who still tuned t- into the games because that helps them feel connected with when they went to college, which is for a lot of people an extremely memorable and good time, and and that that
0: pull is it, like no small thing, right? Like like to yeah. have that as the reason people tune in to your thing, and then to just be playing with that like a toy seems yeah. like I mean it, it's weird because like I never got into college football because uh, University of Illinois Eli and I were fucking awful, like historically awful, like winning like one game a season awful. They've never had a particularly good football program. They've been okay the last couple of years, but then they also thought they should hire Levy Smith. That did not go very well. Um And so even though I had a I Chicago
3: co- bear coach, <laughs>
0: yeah. I know football. I know. Yes. Football. Yes. I'm well, sorry. he was a great Chicago bear coach, but he was a very, very bad uh university of Illinois coach. And as a result, I like came out of college, with, like no personal association with like, the sport that was most integrated into my personal and family life, football, and so as a result, why was I going to watch college football? Because my understanding, like everyone else that watches it, is not necessarily for the athletics, it's because of your history and the rivalries and absent that, like getting finding your way into college football is a little more challenging,
1: yeah.
2: I mean, like, I want to like as a fellow al- alumni of of a smaller art school, like it's all it's all stuff you experience secondhand, right? Like in 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 northern Indiana, it was kind of like your allegiances could filter out to like Purdue or IU. Uh, was was effectively like depending on where your you know parts of your family you know, went went to school. Those those are your kind of op- kind of your options. Unless you were Catholic, in which case Notre Dame uh, was the like was the program. uh, And this was this was my this is my grandfather. Notre Dame in his head. Notre Dame and the Pope were like besties. It was like they were like side by side was it was like. In terms of importance, like in terms of iconography around the house and things that he took seriously, they were sort of equally weighted uh, was was the Notre Dame program and and his Catholicism. But like those days have also kind of I don't know, they have kind of gone away in part because I think part of the shift that's happened and, and it's been driven a bit by. A longer term effort to create a credible national title system for college is to basically, well, who's the best in college football? And I think when when we were all growing up, this was a less relevant question because it was so regional, right? And it was kind of like there were bowl games and there were there were, there were big bowl games, but ultimately it was kind of like, well, how did you do in your conference? Did did uh, you know how how did how did Purdue uh, do this year against uh, you know against other major programs? That was that was kind of the thing. That was kind of what determined what was a what was a successful season. And then I feel like in the last decade or so it turned into, I don't know, I guess like there's Alabama and there's everyone else and they all saw, you know what I mean? It's like all these programs kind of like felt like they declined or collapsed a bit. And part of it was because like as, you know, as as the sort of the national ranking sorting got more ruthless, uh, it, it sort of became clear who who are the actual like viable teams to win national championships. And once it moves into, well, who's going to be the best, College football program in America. A lot of these rivalries, they don't become unimportant, but they became deprioritized versus like who's going to win the national college football title. Which was this go re-
0: alongside the introduction of like the playoff bracket in like 2008-ish? Yeah. Like I remember like I remember like Obama like talking a lot about like ah, got to the playoff system to uh, to college uh, football, and it seems like that tracks alongside. What you're talking about was like trying. Like, how do you create yeah. a true playoff, like a, a Super Bowl equivalent?
2: For- Weird. Obama preferring a meritocratic illusion <laughs> uh, <laughs> to uh, to historical to a healthy historical reality. I mean, look, but I, but I will say, like,
0: as someone that has no history with it, the lack of a, a structure that makes any fucking sense to an outsider makes me look at college football and then go what are all these bowls? Why do I care about any of this? And the truth is it's because there's the history and like the regional stuff, and like those people care. But the moment you try to nationalize it, the moment you try to make it more akin to the NFL or, or like one of these prominent sports leagues, you have to give it stakes and structure. And that comes from like a playoff and a unified quote winner at the end.
3: Right. So this is, this is basically like why I found college football so fascinating, even though I don't really watch it. Uh, is that you have this like nationalization as you said Patrick that where college football was an entirely regional sport like through the 70s but as ESPN comes into existence as the internet comes into existence the the idea of having the national champion be something that can be objectively measured and no longer debated uh that seems really cool so you have like the Bowl Alliance and then the Bowl Championship Series and then the playoff, all these attempts to like create this objective structure that is still built around people arguing over whether a win in Missouri or whether a win in <laughs> Oregon State matters more. But we, should in ex- we should explain October. that because if you've gotten
0: this far, like college, like the way college wins, losses, okay. strength, like can you explain how that works? Because it is, it's part of the arcane beauty of college, but I think to an outsider is just like the
3: fuck are you talking about like <laughs> so so there are a 100 odd teams in in division 1 college football they are organized into currently eight conference or 10 conferences that might drop down to nine depending on what the pack 4 does uh pack four. <laughs> the pack 4 so just the
2: and the pack 4 the pack 4 you wouldn't even run a fantasy league with more members. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah so um you have these uh these conferences that are organized and the teams mostly play each other in the conferences occasionally they play each other in like random neutral site games or uh, a home at home one year and then the next you'll have you know Alabama play against Washington or whatever uh and they'll they'll play each other but for the most part Alabama plays other teams in its conference which is the Southeast Conference which is Mostly teams from the Southeast. Uh, uh, It's added Missouri and Texas and Oklahoma in recent years and is kind of kind of like slowly clawing its way out of that geographic region, which is why I'm why I'm chuckling here. Um, So how do you judge whether Alabama is better than the University of Southern California, which plays Almost entirely schools on the West Coast. Well, these teams do play each other every now, every so often, or like USC will play against some random East Coast team once or twice. Uh, But basically, you have to use the eye test. And so for a long time, the media would. Vote on, they still do, but it's not as important, the media would vote on who they think is the best. And usually this was just the team with the best record. If you don't lose a game, you're, you know, number one through number five. And that that narrows down as the season goes on. Um, And that's fine. And those teams would get invited to Bulls. The best team from the Pac-10 or Pac-12 or Pac-8 or whatever gets invited to the Rose Bowl to play the best team from the Big Ten. And then you get another data point at the end of the season. And you're like, OK, you know, this team went 11-1 and and then they won the Rose Bowl against a really good team. This is basically our national champion. I think I'm going to vote for USC to do this. Perfect. Uh But... What do you do if these teams have like no data points against each other? What if they have the exact same data points? What if Alabama also goes 11 and 1 and beats a really good team in its bowl? Uh, well, wouldn't it be cool if USC and Alabama played each other? And so you have the idea of the playoff being born, but it was mostly the media voting. Then there were some, there's some computer systems that had some influence over this. The computer systems were like controversial because they would. um, They didn't know how to deal with running up the score. If USC beats a good team by 50 points, that's a lot more impressive than if USC beats a good team by three points. So the computer systems would be like, okay, yeah, run up the score. That's great. But then people would be like, this is really unfair. USC is just destroying all these teams that have never had any chance against it because USC is a traditional power. And... We should make the the computers not judge by that. Or if it's over 20 points, then it's all the same. Uh, So the computer systems would get caught up in this weird strength of schedule, strength of victory things. uh, And like they would occasionally find teams that were like, oh, this eight and three team is actually better than this 11 and 0 team because the 11 and 0 team hasn't played anybody. But people get upset because they'd see the numbers. So there's all this debate about the computer system. what it's come down to now as the college football playoff has has developed, I think it started in 2013, uh, but it would, there was obviously, like, discussion of it bubbling up for a while, is now you have, like, 12 people who are supposedly experts at college football, a group which has included Condoleezza Rice at times. Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, perspective Cleveland Browns
0: coach, right? Yeah. She, she was on some of those, uh, like, like, coaching uh, searches. So Christ.
3: Yeah. <laughs> So you get the like 12 college football experts at the end of the season to say, okay, who have these teams played? Who have they beat? What is going on here? What's the like narrative arc of the season? Do they have players injured? A computer system won't account for that. All these, all these aspects They're like, okay, these are the four best teams. We'll have them play. And, that has just expanded to 12 teams, but that hasn't actually been implemented yet. It might not be implemented because of this realignment mess. Some of the conference commissioners are talking about how they, they want some of those rules changed. But regardless, um, you've gone from this system of like media and sometimes coaches going by polls, which are basically just who happens to have the best record almost all the time or who has the biggest name or both to, including some objective measures like computer systems that sometimes computers spit out weird results when you put, put the math in um, to having like a literal committee in a smoke filled room, make, to having these debates <laughs> and making these decisions. And this has occurred across the past 40 years or so of college football, like becoming a national sport instead of entirely a regional sport as Rob discussed uh, And this has also occurred as the money gets much bigger, because in the early 80s, that's when college football, the colleges, won a case against the NCAA that they could set up their own television deals as opposed to having it sold as a package through the NCAA. And as that's happened, they've started getting more money by packaging the conferences, or in the case of Notre Dame, just simply a school individually so the sport has become rapidly nationalized and rapidly objectified or becoming more objective yeah. uh, quote unquote objective right right. but right. this is all happening like under the auspices of rampant neoliberal post-reagan economics that are trying to say you know we must eliminate all inefficiencies the pact Twelve is an inefficient conference. It doesn't have the the proper TV deal. So now Oregon is going to be playing against Purdue instead of Oregon playing against California, and yeah, this well, it's is is it's, that inversion of like, well, what what is called what
2: are these football programs for? What is college football for? Right, uh it's for TV deals and nationally interesting uh sports content. And that is that is now what it exists to fill. Yeah. And so these historic these historic vestiges, where it's like, well, these teams had you had to play regionally because, like, once upon a time, you would have to hop on a train and go go barnstorming around your region and play these other teams. All that stuff is vestigial, and it doesn't serve the purpose of. No, like what's interesting now is this whole like who is the best college football program in the United States, which never used to be the question. But the minute you turn it into you build your entire like, you know, midwinter TV schedule around like this very question, Uh, you know, you're going to you're going to have to take a hammer to some of these historic conferences. Like this is why Pac-12 is so vulnerable. Right. It had a few marquee programs. And then a lot of big schools that weren't really like high achieving athletic programs, but they were big and they meant a lot to the people in the region. Sorry, you don't make the cut like yeah. it's we got we got to get we got to get these good programs into conferences with good programs because that's what national like TV is going to want to watch.
3: So. I want to I want to question one thing you said there It wasn't that who is the very best college football team was not a question. This is this is the thing that made me interested, because how are you applying an objective standard to something that is completely subjective, or was completely subjective, you know, 40 to 15 years ago? Uh, well, actually, like 100 to 15 years ago, or 140 to 15 years ago. Um, this created a bunch of debate. What does it mean for the Pac-12 to be better or worse than the SEC? What does it mean for... Ohio State to have won the Rose Bowl versus Alabama winning the Sugar Bowl. These things created this fascinating culture of how do you determine this thing by, and it's basically by arguing, by yelling about it, by, uh you had like coaches being like, when, when number one and number two would automatically be sorted into a, uh championship game, coaches that were on the cusp between two and three would, would start, you know, pitching their, their teams and being like, well, that I sounds can't like a imagine. fun chaotic
0: mess to me. Like that, and apply, it, it, applying it w- objective analysis to this sounds like a, a, this is a part of the alchemy of like what made it fun it was like, People want right. history. They want to yell at each other and they want to get drunk. And so, actually, yeah. not having a consensus is part of the fun. Exactly. But people didn't realize
2: that. People didn't realize what the fun was because I do remember <laughs> back in like the early two thousands where I was like, "This doesn't make any sense. How the fuck does this? How the fuck does this work? You, you're telling me like like sports writers are voting? They're like rank these. This is stupid. And it was, but that's why it was so good because you could never settle the argument. Like if you, were, it, it was it was like designed in a lab to be like, how could you keep two people planted at a bar? arguing affably with each other uh, through like several pitchers of beer. It's this, it's this, it's this system. But, but Rowan, I will say though, like, yes, they are emphasizing like where the, the push has been toward emphasizing this very question and all that. But even now today with all the changes they've made, one of the marquee matchups, like this is one of the things they market the shit out of every year is uh, Michigan, Ohio. Doesn't yeah. matter. Doesn't matter what's happening nationally. Michigan, Ohio is just like everyone tune in. It's Michigan, Ohio time. This is what college football is all about. And you know what? It is, and th- that's kind of the weird thing too. Is you can you can create a national tournament however you like. You can put all this. You can lay all this groundwork to create sort of a notion of competitive parity and a and a way to sort these teams together. The thing you can't reproduce is. Michigan and Ohio mean something, not just to the people who are like from the region, but also just to like college fan, college sports fans. And you can't you can't replace that with like, well, and here, these two teams have met in the bracket. Isn't this just as exciting? No, because you're never going to make. We know for a fact some of these programs will take worse results across a season if they win the rivalry game.
0: Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, th- uh, Rob, that sounds like us. <laughs> that sounds like us. Like <laughs> fuck the Packers. It's a fine. We went three and we went, three, we went we went three and fifteen. Who cares? Do we do we, do we break Aaron
3: Rodgers' collarbone? Great season was a win. Like, <laughs> but but so. The thing is, now you get, okay, these Ohio State fans are going to watch Ohio State play in any big game. Let's toss them against Florida State. Let's mm-hmm. toss them in against uh, Texas. Let's toss them in against Oregon, who's now part of their conference. Uh, and also, each of these other teams has th- had these things. Like when Washington played Washington State, and I'm saying the past tense now, because as far as I know, it's going to be past tense a- after next season. That was the the Apple Cup. They would play for these trophies. Cal against Stanford, that one's still on, but uh, those schools yeah, just got a lot mind. less relevant. The rest yes. of the conference was raptured. That's, that's the big game. Like, that's just what it's called, the big game. And, like, <laughs> the most... The most famous highlight in college football history, arguably, comes from the big game, one of the the incarnations in the 80s. The band is on the field. They think the game is over. They kick, but there's still one kickoff left. The band is on the field. The guy runs through for a touchdown, completely flips who's going to win that game. Like Alabama-Auburn, the pick six, or the kick six. Uh That happened 10 years ago. Auburn suddenly comes out of nowhere and creams Alabama, or not creams Alabama, beats like a seemingly invincible Alabama team and goes on to win the national championship. And that's one of the big local rivalries. That's the Iron Bowl. That one's still going to be around. But all of these things like have these names and traditions and someone is just like taking a a scalpel and, you know, Drawing an incision through what those rivalries were, and those will continue to happen. So yeah, the Apple Cup was never as big as Ohio, or uh, Ohio State, Michigan, but it was to many people, but not enough people to get five million views on a TV screen, and uh, that's become the only thing that matters. And there, there have been a lot of people with like various ideas to to try and stop this thing from basically eating itself uh, making bad short-term decisions chasing a quick buck with the tv deal of a better conference somewhere else Um, like i've seen some coaches suggesting well if notre dame is an independent college or an independent school that schedules all of its college football games via just people want to come see notre dame why doesn't everyone do that and that would be like yeah, that would kind of be a, a reasonably quick fix because Oregon would want to play Oregon State in a situation like that. Oregon just may not have space to play Oregon State because now it has to play eight more teams from the Midwest for no reason. Uh, well, their their thing is,
2: I think in all of this, I mean, first of all, like the TV contract money is so ridiculous uh, that, again, it's like – if you are a player in these leagues, it is so clear. Like you, you've got you've got athletic departments basically like laughing as they like you know light like light, light cigars on fire, uh, burning one hundred one hundred dollar bills to to light the cigars. It's it's that level of disparity. But also now, if you're in these if you're in these like power programs, uh your schedules appear to be getting harder. Your, your work is becoming a lot more pro football-shaped than it used to be. Well, because I mean, that's, that's what it's...
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like they're setting up for essentially like a professional and amateur league. Like, right? Like, that's the track this is heading towards? Well, like that's just, just that, powerhouse.
2: Like, if you used to be in one of these conferences and you were like one of the good teams... Got games that you can kind of take off, right? Like, Purdue (laughs) didn't have to sweat every team. It, like, yeah, the the sweatiness of these leagues was of these conferences was, I think, on balance lower because there were certain like IUs in the Big Ten, right? But, like, historically, IU is not much of a football program, they have moments, but like. Purdue doesn't have to circle that date on the calendar. You can kind of be like your varsity is <laughs> going to go win the game in the first half. And then some people are going to get reps in the second half. And and we're just going to we're going to keep it moving. And now this this movement is toward. No, it's going to be it's going to be dog eat dog uh, pretty much throughout these throughout these schedules. And I think, man, if you if you are a if you are a player that was in the Pac-12 like. You know, two like two years ago, you're finishing up now, and you're gonna be moving into this new world. Uh, well, I guess this is all delayed, so you might not. Yeah, have there's what there's to, one to more season
3: that. of the Pac-12, and then yeah, brave new world. But, but the the point
2: is, like, you know, a, a USC player got a lot of easy games. <laughs> they had a lot of they had a lot of games off, and now I know that like one of the arguments, like one of the things that's made recruiting actually tough for some of these programs, is that for people whose goals are to go to the pros there are certain programs that get a lot of national attention from scouts that you get a lot of tv attention and also are really good at just like training people up and making them nfl ready and it's a it's a steady pipeline like uh you know nfl front offices will trust that people coming out of this program are are, are ready to go but at the same time like i feel i i feel like there used to be more good opportunities for players to like become star star starters at a lot of programs and now it's like kind of getting condensed into you're gonna have to go play for one of these effectively semi-pro teams
0: yeah well so we have other topics we want to get to oh sorry do you want to have a closing thought
3: this is what i was gonna do if we want to talk about like how money is changing things it's time to talk about the women's world cup
0: yeah well (laughs) let's take a quick break Uh, and, uh, if you are, uh, listening on, uh, on certain podcast feeds, you hear our ads. If you're listening to others, you won't. Go to remapradio.com and, uh, you can, uh, support us and, uh, I don't know, you could also just listen to the ad one in the background, knowing you're supporting us, but you don't have to do that. You can just support us directly. So we'll take a quick break, come back and we'll talk about the world, Women's World Cup. no. No messiness there. Just clean sailing. (laughs) Just people playing soccer. We'll be right back. One of the most normal morning routines is a bowl, some milk, some cereal. What changes as you get older is you might want to modify what you're putting into that bowl with the milk. If you suddenly want to cut back on sugar or you want to add more protein, you're thinking about fitness goals, but you don't want to give up the deliciousness of what you're putting in that bowl, you might want to think about Magic Spoon. uh, Because with Magic Spoon, you get all those flavors you love, high-protein, less sugar, and as someone with kids, the idea that I can show them that these cereals can have all of these things and you can think about what's in your body every morning, seems really good. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack of four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs. Only 140 calories a serving, it's high protein. Has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And look, you put peanut butter in anything, I'm there, which is why that's my favorite one and I'm hiding it from my children. You can go to magicspoon.com remap to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code remap at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash remap and use the code REMAP to save $5 off. Thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode.
2: Hey, Remap Radio listeners, Rob here. You know, the time was I'd come up with a meal plan for the entire week, and then I'd trawl through the grocery stores making sure I had everything I needed right on budget to make those home-cooked meals. Unfortunately, times have changed, and speaking of time, I don't have quite as much of it as I used to. You know, there's a podcast empire to be overseen. But I can't just order fast food and pizza delivery every night. My budget and, unfortunately, my increasingly delicate stomach won't allow it. Fortunately for folks in the same boat as me, there's Factor. Factor gives you 35 options each week to make meal planning easy, and not just for dinner. They have breakfast foods and snacks covered as well. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. But it's just as convenient delivering the food you need right to your door. And now, if you head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off, that's that's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And now you can head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off. That's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off.
0: And we're back uh to move from one simple topic to another Rowan you had mentioned the women's world cup which uh, admittedly i have not followed a ton of but uh my sense is that is not the case uh, for you what 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 do what do we need to what do we need to know what do you, or what do you care about what have you cared about in the women's world cup so far
2: at least you care what? about something <laughs> Unlike yeah. the U- us women's <laughs> national <laughs> team <laughs> smiling contented mediocrity
3: got him <laughs> So
2: put them on undisputed. Well, Shannon ain't there anymore. They need somebody.
3: <laughs> I'm I'm a vampire, right? I I go to sleep at like 4 a.m. Oh, you're just and built I'm for on World the, Cup life. And, oh, and and I'm on the West Coast, so like all these games, not quite all of them. There are a couple that are way late. Uh, all these games are perfectly within my Rowan standard time. <laughs> so this is this is like. The most world cup I have followed since like uh i think i think twenty ten the the men's now uh, so I was in Chicago then and I had a nine to five job I still attempted to watch these games uh one of my one of my i don't know about favorite memories but uh, one of my strongest memories of this uh was England was playing Brazil in the quarterfinal of the 2002 World Cup. And those were the two best teams that had been going on so far. And that game was on like 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. And then the U.S. was playing Germany. And this was when I still really, really cared about the U.S. men's national team. And this was at like 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. So I tried to watch the England-Brazil game, which I did. And then three hours later, wake up for uh, the U.S. and Germany. I have zero memory of that. I was just like (laughs) fading in and out of that match. You were there, but... eh. (laughs) This is like the the biggest match in the U.S. men's national team history. Because like... They should have won. They should have beaten Germany, and they had a clear path to the World Cup final if they had managed to beat Germany. But the ref completely screwed them. One of the biggest instances of ref ball I've, that's ever been ha- ha- happened. One of the German players handballed the ball in the box. Should have been a red card and a penalty, and it didn't get called. And Germany went on to win the game. Uh, it was it was a complete complete disaster. Uh, The U.S. was outplaying them. I think it was tied at that time and just ref totally missed it. Uh, Before we
0: get to some of the specifics of the Women's World Cup, where does your personal interest in soccer come from? Like, where does it start? Does it have an
3: origin story? uh, Soccer has been my sport since I was a kid. I played it. I refed it. uh, You refed it? Okay, that's yes. a side
0: note. We'll get. We're gonna circle back around to that. But
2: I didn't know continue. that, yet somehow it's the least surprising thing I've ever learned <laughs> about Ron.
3: <laughs> I Bill, like Bill to, to
2: argue. <laughs> I
3: like. I like things to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. I played it. I reffed it. I had season tickets to the MLS team when uh, I lived in Denver, Colorado Rapids, in the late nineties. I. Was on Championship Manager when you had to import it. Uh, played the hell out of FIFA ninety eight back in the day. Um, and, and did the, the, the way you fell
0: into soccer originally was it just uh, you know was it something your parents were pushing or like like how how or like up oh, it's a sport I tried and this one this is the one that clicked.
3: Yeah, my parents like somewhat pushed it. I don't exactly know why. There's a lot of soccer culture stuff that my parents may have had that I picked up. Like, the idea that soccer was the cultured European sport versus these <laughs> mundane these American sports. American sports. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, wait, we'll talk about this. Like, soccer culture is, like, one of the things that I unfortunately, like, am way too much of an expert on, and I assume that's why Rob invited me here <laughs> to talk about the U.S. Women's National Team being part of the culture wars, because part of like six different culture wars um so yeah i was i was big into early mls i got into like international soccer at the 94 and especially the 98 world cups um got into the realistic computer games in a way that like was able to give me like a veneer of expertise about the entire world of soccer um I would stay up watching uh Fox Sports World which was their Spanish channel and they would have like games from Argentina and games from uh you know all all different c- corners of the world with Spanish announcers so I would like learn to understand the rhythms of the game through <laughs> how the announcers voices work cuz I don't speak Spanish That's but amazing. I do amazing I do comprehend Spanish soccer announcers uh yeah and you know i have since i since i have become an adult and gone to like a college that was extremely anti-sports but also like found myself back on twitter and following soccer with a bunch of people who cared like i've been gone in and out of like a lot of soccer fandom but uh ever since i've transitioned especially the women's world cup and ever since women's soccer has become a lot more interesting and international uh, which is a huge part of the story of this Women's World Cup and what happened with the American team. Um, like, this has become a, a pretty a pretty notable interest of mine. Football Manager is officially adding women's teams in hmm. their next incarnation, and I literally cannot wait. Like, this is, you know, I'm excited about Baldur's Gate 3. I'm excited about all these things, but, like... That's your Baldur's Gate three is
0: is, is, is the addition of women
2: Wait, to football. So hang on, I I because uh, this actually ties into so many things. Because like what you're just sketching out here is like the growth of the growth of soccer in the U S. is like a development that's happened across your lifetime. It's gone from like niche right. interest to basically tri- a triumphant like national not 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 quite like a national pastime but it's 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 so much bigger than it used to be yeah and part of it you know i think god so you're going back to chicago that you, you were, were you also in the region then when daily got the uh world cup was uh, that uh
3: no 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 this was i was yeah. i was only in chicago for a summer because of of college things uh um, but but yeah it was like it was a, a
2: niche interest and the US men's team didn't seem like it was it, it like had the firepower because we're not a soccer country uh in, in a lot of ways so it always seemed like it was an underdog underdog effort uh you know the MLS got started um you know in the what the 90s 96 and my recollection was it started like <laughs> It seemed like it was maybe joke league is is unfair, but, uh, you know, the the arrival of Beckham, uh, you know, way past his prime in elite European football and very, very capable of competing in MLS uh, like all these developments sort of happened. But for me, for from my standpoint, it always seemed like the U.S. women's team played such a huge role in causing the United States to embrace soccer
3: because this country loves winners. Um, so yeah, the big, the big event for that is the 1999 women's world cup. Uh, The Women's World Cup officially started in 1991, or FIFA says their records go back to 1991. The, the cup that was played in 91 was like called like the Pepsi Cola Women's Competition or something weird. Like I, I'm, I'm making up which brand it was. It was like played in every other day, which is an insanely high, uh, High amount of games in a week for soccer players. They normally will want to play two games in a week, or at their most, like three games in seven days. Uh, And this was, you know, four games in a week. Um, The matches were 80 minutes. Like, I don't think it was televised in the US. The US won that, what might have made a newspaper article somewhere. That was not a big deal. 95, the Women's World Cup is played in Norway. It's. Is it, was it in Norway? Norway won it. I don't remember. I think it was in Sweden, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, this was also, I don't think, televised, or maybe it was like in the dark of night somewhere. Uh, again, not a big deal. The U.S. made the semifinals. 1999 comes along. Uh, this is five years after the U.S. has hosted the Men's World Cup. And, like, people have realized, hey, soccer's kind of a big thing, Uh Americans can have fun with soccer as long as it's you know not not a taking over from the other sports, but a fun thing to do in the summer, and the U.S. not take away from baseball. That's our boring sport. (laughs) <laughs> the the US men's team had kind of flamed out in 98 at the World Cup. Uh they they went in with really high expectations after having done pretty well in 94. 98 they go in and they go out in the group stage. It's pretty bad. And so there's like this we want a winner Component of the US hosting the Women's World Cup in 1999, where the US women like walk out into, um, I think, uh, Meadowlands or so, not Soldier Field. Yeah, pretty sure the Meadowlands are one of the New York stadiums, I believe. Two fields that have never seen a winner. So <laughs> yeah. You know, it could have been either. They they walk out and they've like played these matches in World Cups before in front of like a thousand people in front of hundreds of people. They're not they're not professionalized like they're they're professionalized maybe within the national team, uh, but they don't have like a professional league that they're going and playing in. And they walk out and there's seventy five thousand people cheering them on and waving their U S flags and so on. And it's just like all of a sudden women's soccer is just like a huge thing in part because the Americans can win and they do win. And this is like the biggest thing in women's soccer or possibly all women's sports. One of the biggest things in all soccer history, definitely the biggest thing in American women's soccer history is the 99ers winning Brandi Chastain, tearing her shirt off and uh, in celebration. Like this is, this is massive. Out of curiosity, how much of us
2: women's success is sort of an inherited structural advantage from women's collegiate athletics uh, in the United States.
3: A lot. This is, what's the biggest question you want to ask me? Uh, I think is the best place to start, because that's part of the story of what's going on with the U.S. women's national team and why yeah. they're no longer world destroyers.
2: Well, I think I think part of it is, like for me, one of the things that jumped out at me here was that I don't know like vibe shift is a vague word but I think (laughs) one of the things expectations seem to get very very heavy around this team in part because of the success but also this is the first year guy who was the ESPN commentator you was on the last winning team but was the one who was complaining about like the players looking too relaxed during group stages after after struggling
3: that, that was Carly Lloyd um absolute legend she scored a hat trick in the first 20 minutes of the 2015 final but
2: that sort of jumped out at me because it's like you have this we're in the process of a generational passing of the torch as to who is the u.s women's team and And this was seen as a victory lap right which is like hey let's let's go get one more and then boom
3: like on to the next generation of this 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 team so When you're talking about the U.S. Women's National Team, you're talking about, like, six or seven different things in terms of how they're perceived, right? So, you have, like, to the casual fan, to just a general American sports fan, someone who, like, tunes into anything that the Americans are doing in the Olympics and roots for whoever has the U.S. flag there, the U.S. Women's National Team is the best thing. They should win everything. Like, this is you know, what they, what they do. They won in 91, which nobody knows about should nobody watched 99, which was a huge thing. Uh, and then they won in 2015 and 2019. Again, they won the last two world cups. Like the U S should come in and be a death star and destroy everything. Right. Then there's also like the U S women's national team, super fans, and just sort of U.S. soccer super fans in general. Uh, these are, you know, somewhat more expert, know the players, maybe have grudges against the coach for not picking certain players, maybe have their own, like, idea of how the U.S. women's national team should play, what's going wrong, what's going right. But at the core of it is still, they want to wave their flag and say America, America. And the U.S. women's national team has won four out of the eight women's World Cups and the last two. So they, these people have extraordinarily high expectations built on knowing the history these super fans are also often like millennial or younger gen x women came of age during the 99 to 2015 era have this like legendarium of players in their head they can name some guys go abby wambach mia ham like these are and it's like a source of it's like a direct and deep association. How this team does is how I do in my life. Like this is, it's sports fandom, but it's like there's a whole bunch of cultural aspects of it in terms of um, women's identity, queer identity. A lot of famous U.S. women's national team's players have been gay. Uh, activist and liberal identity. The U.S. women's national team is all in on Black Lives Matter. They have been usually considered to be kind of a, a force for good for women in the country. Um, so also these people have expertise that history is on the the US women's side like the and fandom. Um, they might know that things were likely to be tougher at this World Cup, but they would have still expected a win and certainly expected doing better than uh, a group stage loss. Or a a round of 16 loss after squeaking out of the group stage. Um, And there's the marketing. The marketing of the U.S. Women's National Team has been all in on these are world-destroying motherfuckers. Uh, There is one commercial that Fox kept running during the World Cup that was like... uh, their basic advertisement for, you know, when and where each game is. Uh, And it was like the U.S. versus the world. And they'd focus on one of the U.S. players usually, or they'd have kind of a general one. In the general one, it would like go around a whole, like a, a quick montage of people with various foreign accents being like, how do you stop the women's national team? Oh, you mark Alex Morgan. Oh, you get stronger. Oh, you get faster. Oh, you get smarter. And at the end of this... Alex Morgan, like, stares at the camera and is like, oh, yeah, good luck with that, and, like, strides away. And, like, all of this marketing around the U.S. national team is these are invincible world destroyers. All of the Americans are just going to run rampant over the world. This is basically a gimme. Like, they they don't – they're there to make up the numbers. This is all about America. Um, So this marketing is, like – Again, it's correct based off the fact that the U.S. has won the last two World Cups and made the final of the World Cup before then. These are these are not inaccurate necessarily, not inaccurate portrayals necessarily. But it's setting them up as like incredibly self-aggrandizing and cocky, and uh, basically like nothing can actually stop these women. They're so good at everything. Um, but, you know, that comes with a price. Anyone who's not a fan of the Americans or immediately rooting for the flag or has imprinted on the U.S. women's national team probably thinks these are kind of annoying. Uh, That's the nature of a dynasty, right? Like, right. In, in many ways, like, this is what like, you know, you have
0: kind of likable dynasties like the Chicago Bulls, right? And I'm <laughs> sure there are people
3: who didn't like them, but, like, they broadly I, speaking. I grew up in Portland. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. fuck Michael Jordan, fuck the Bulls. <laughs> But I think like culturally, yeah, like sure. that was a
0: dynasty that was well liked, Like, The Patriots, yeah. not that, right? <laughs> like, uh, like I think bro- broadly disliked, um, um, despite like running rampant, um, for, you know, essentially 20 years on the NFL. Yeah. And so I think those are the risks that come with like the maintaining a dynasty over right. extended stretches of time. And it sounds like this, this era of like kind of like a, a broader, like, Power structure for the uh, U.S. women's soccer. They've had this particular st- uh, strength uh, stretch. And it sounds like, you know, yeah, like based uh, on comments Ramba say, like, there were signs of buckling um, as as they were nearing this moment. Yeah.
3: So, uh, yeah. And they've also had specific players. Rapino is involved in like the biggest highlight of what U.S. women's soccer history that's not the Brandi Chastain goal, where she, she was, was retiring, retiring, right? This was supposed to be her yes, last this is year. Her- she was in the 2011 World Cup and kicked the cross that Abby Wambach turned in for a goal that was like one of the most insanely well-timed uh tension-releasing goals in the semifinal of the 2011 World Cup where uh the U.S. was uh, on the verge of going out to Brazil in the semifinals and they got the tying goal at like the very last second and won on penalties and went to the final. This is like... That's kind of like the moment where the modern U.S. women's national team aura was born, and this is Abby Wambach, who's the biggest star of the 2000s, getting the cross from Rapino, who would be one of the biggest stars of the next decade plus. Uh, Alex Morgan and uh, Julie Ertz have also been on these teams, and this is like three stars who form the backbone of. Uh, the US team. So you also have like the same players who have been there for three World Cups and four in Rapino's case. Um, anyway, so like this also comes with a price, this Dynasty aspect where if you're not all on board with america you're probably pretty annoyed by how much these women are getting the attention there was a dutch forward linda bierenstein who had a quote about how happy she was that the u.s had gone out in the round of 16 because she was just (laughs) sick of their shit and like it was it was a little it was a little uncouth but also like i don't know if you watch this marketing. If you see the way that the U S media, the U S fans talk about the team as if like, there's nothing that can stand in their way. Like, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm kind of with her as a, as an objective observer, which is the next group that I was talking about, like to, to someone who is just like following the sport for the sake of the sport, or doesn't have a specific rooting interest in this particular world cup, or their rooting interest is like out in the first round or whatever. The U.S. women's national team is very good. They're still probably the most talent of any team there. But going into this women's World Cup, there were probably eight, and then as it progressed, like ten teams that you would say, like, okay, this team has a real shot to win it all. Well, and that's a question. Like,
2: were they? Because I know that there is sort of a, this is always happening with teams, but like you, you have issues of changeover. As you're bringing in new players and some of your veterans are, are are leaving, do you have a team sort of like dealing with a like decline in transition or is the rest of the world also just like catching up in terms of like level of play?
3: This is another major thing and I can switch gears to that or I yeah. can finish this kind of what the U.S. women's national team culture is thing and then we could talk about the professionalization of the rest of the world. Uh, finish your thought. Yeah, sure. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. So you have like a situation where a lot of people would say, yeah, the U.S. women's national team is probably the team that's most likely to win this. But it's not like a 50-50 chance of the U.S. or somebody else as it was four years ago, eight years ago. It's like the U.S. women's national team has a 12% chance and the other teams have a 10% chance. Like they might be have the probably the best roster, but. No other team is so far behind that you would expect the U.S. to just completely crush them. But again, you have all these other advertisements, fandom, uh, all these things saying, no, the U.S. is the the world-destroying team. And they do have these up-and-coming superstars. They do have Sophia Smith, who is possibly possibly the best forward in the world now and possibly going to be. They have uh, Naomi Gurma, who stay staked her claim as potentially the best defender in the world at this world cup, the all the U S women's national team member who was actually really good. They still have Lindsay Horan in the prime of her career as like an incredibly powerful midfielder. And when you have like a superstar striker, a superstar midfielder and a superstar defender, you are a contender. Like this is going to be the case as long as the other players around them are reasonably competent and they more than more than certainly are. Um, But, again, these other teams are also getting really good. Uh, And then there's the culture war aspect of the U.S. women's national team, which is very big and complicated. I'm going to summarize it fairly quickly, but you have like I mentioned, a whole bunch, a whole generation of women and queers and various American soccer fans who identify strongly with this team, not simply as being incredibly good and being winners, but also being a force for good just by their existence. And this is primarily a liberal belief. They're like, oh, look how gay they are. Oh, look how activist they are. Um, this team was also significantly, had a significantly higher uh, amount of African-Americans uh than the last couple teams did. Um this aspect of like the US as a force for good goes directly against the conservative viewpoint of them, which there's a lot of like very literal things that conservatives got mad about, including they're gay, they're supporting Black Lives Matter. Uh they the Conservatives also want to piss off the liberal fan base. Um but I think what really has the conservatives get riled up about the U.S. Women's National Team and after 2019 and after their celebrations, after two of like the, I think like one of the main substitutes and one of the starters for the team got married. uh, Like to each other immediately after they were doing like famous TikToks or Instagram stories of them like twerking in the locker room after their victory it's like these were women who appear to have fame and success and exist in the world who are like totally unfettered from patriarchy. And that pisses people who like patriarchy the fuck off. So this, this conservative backlash to the U S women's national team is built a lot on these women don't need them. These women exist. They make their money from their endorsements and so on. And that's, that's not a thing that the the conservatives often can abide. And that, that's, I think, one of the main reasons you're seeing this kind of gleeful backlash at them losing from the right. Um, and then, to cap this off, there's also Alexi Lawless, who is one of Fox Sports' main analysts. That's his official job. His job is to, you know, sit at the desk and say, here's what's happening in the game. And he is pretty decent at that but that's not his actual job his actual job is to say things that rile up everyone else i just mentioned and he's like the number one voice that they go to immediately after what's happened on the field and they're like hey alexi what's happening and he's like i'm gonna say something that's gonna piss everybody off because that's what i'm here for and so like what's an what's an example like like how one of those would go he tweeted out uh his tweets are significantly more um inflammatory than his actual work at the desk though his work at uh, the desk is shocking. Uh, Sh- yes. shocking. He tweeted out like the American women have Gone all in on activism and, you know, being public figures and getting endorsements and so on. And that's fine if you win, but this team stopped winning. And it's easy to see why people have been getting pissed off at them. It's like, mm-hmm. it's a real red meat for the conservatives here. Um, mm-hmm. and real red meat for making the, the liberal super fans upset. Um, at the desk, he's like, he he just kind of smirks and is like, well, if America, if the American team, like before the match with Sweden, the American team was like, oh, we're happy. We're doing well. We know we didn't play super great against Portugal in the last group stage match, but where everything is cool, we're going to be great in the group stage. And so he would like smirk at the desk. Well, if everything they're saying is true, then we'll see the U.S. women's team win easily. And if not, I guess there'll be problems. Uh, so that that's sort of his whole role. There, They also got Carly Lloyd on the desk, who who you mentioned, Rob, who got extremely pissed off at the team celebrating getting a draw against Portugal in order to barely squeak into the round of 16 to get out of the group stage. And yeah, the U.S. women's national team are supposed to be women – not women destroyers, world destroyers. Uh, (laughs) Well, they'll destroy some other women along the way, but yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) As long as it's American women who succeed then whatever. So Carly Lloyd sees them like celebrating gleefully and some of it's like playing with the fans and that's cool. But some of it is like They appear to be genuinely really happy that they have scraped by Portugal, a team they have thrashed in every other meeting that they've ever had with. This is a team that, because they only scraped by Portugal instead of winning big, instead of beating the Netherlands, instead of beating Vietnam big, they're now going to be playing Sweden in the round of 16, a traditional power, the number three ranked team according to FIFA's rankings, where the U.S. was number one. And they end up losing to Sweden. Had they performed better in the group stage, they would have played South Africa, a team I really loved watching, a team that had one of my favorite players in the tournament and Timbi Katlana at at Stryker. But a team that's ranked like number 50 in the world and ended up losing to the Netherlands. They they put up a fight, but it was not... um, The Netherlands did seem to be largely in control. And this is because the U.S. women basically the US women had a really good tournament if they were the men's team that's how bad it was um Rowan, I one time with the Carly Lloyd thing real quick just
2: because <laughs> like this is one of the things that really caught my eye was I could the thing I couldn't parse <clears throat> is like Is this also like, was it a moment of like, oh no, Carly Lloyd's gotten boomerfied where it's like you step away from like being on the, being in the locker room, being with the team. And now, now you have this like sense of like proprietary, like this is my fucking legacy I handed you. And what are you doing with it? And to an extent I get how you get there, but also it seemed really ungenerous for the person who's like, you don't go here anymore. Like your, your time is done these are the people who actually have to go out and, and compete, and now you're kind of throwing rocks at them. But it sounds like you also kind of saw some of the same stuff that, like, Carly Lloyd was like, I don't know if this is... Like, it sounds like you also kind of didn't know if they, their focus looked like it was where it needed to be.
3: Yeah. They, they should not have been celebrating that. Like, this is, this is not... This is not a culture war thing. This is, like, a basic history <laughs> of football thing. Like, the U.S. women's national team that won the last two World Cups, that is what half of every Women's World Cup ever played, celebrating a draw with a Portugal team that's made their first World Cup ever and is going out of the tournament. And Portugal put up a good fight. I was very impressed with Portugal. But, like, I was really, really shocked by seeing this. I think Carly Lloyd, some of Carly Lloyd's issue is that, like, I think that Fox and sitting next to Alexi Lawless and so on is kind of prodding her to say more inflammatory things. I think that's part of her personality. But I think one of the biggest things is that she looks a little nervous at the desk. Uh, she, she does not, she's like, she retired, I think, two years ago. Um, she's not someone who has been like, fully television made comfortable on television. And they want her to be, she's such a huge name and important name in US American soccer history. So I think a lot of the like ungenerous parts of it felt like nervousness to me. Uh, Like, like accusing players who were possibly her friends of caring more about endorsements than actually winning on the pitch. That one, that one's a little much. Um, But it's not hard to see that this team has failed pretty dramatically at both the Olympics and the Women's World Cup in the past three years since their victory in 2019. And yeah, that's worth being mad about if you care about this team. I thought there was an interesting uh, Go out and ask something else. That's not that.
2: No, because you alluded to (laughs) even Carly Lloyd making reference to the endorsements thing. You sort of led us into the segment by talking about like money. And a moment ago, like a few minutes ago, you alluded to professionalization also ticking up in sports. Let's talk about like just how the professional landscape and the incentive structures have like changed now as women's football has become a much bigger deal.
3: So. The story of women's football across the de- last decade or so is that the U.S. is no longer the center of the universe. Um, even when the U.S. was not winning World Cups in the 2000s, there is still a push for it to have the very best professional leagues that they possibly can. Their first professional league that they tried to get off the ground in the early 2000s, like... Uh, they tried to get the very best players from the 1999 world women's world cup and they largely succeeded they just did not have the financial ability for all kinds of different reasons uh to get that league off the ground in the but in the 2000s what starts happening is that Countries in like central and northern Europe, like Sweden and Germany, especially manage to get a good, slow, consistent professionalization off the ground. The German League and the Swedish League start becoming more of the center of uh, world women's world soccer and Germany especially starts doing well. And they win the the two World Cups that take place in the 2000s. They have their own, like, super club team in Wolfsburg. Their first division is starting to get more women. Sweden has uh, Marta, who is the best player of the world by far in this era. She goes to a, a team, I believe it's Malmo, which is, like, just a tiny little city in Sweden that happens to have a team. And they manage to get the best women's player in the world. And... That's like her second home after she's played for in the American league. She goes back to the American leagues when they restarted the 2010s. That that American league is like, okay, 2011 World Cup happened. uh, We're getting the best players in the world again, but it's not quite all the best players of the world. Like some of those European leagues, particularly Germany and particularly France, are starting to get teams that are pretty good in the men's world, but not like insanely good. Uh, and saying, well, what if we had the very best women's team in the world? How cool would that be? Because it's really hard to break into men's football, but it doesn't take that much investment to start professionalizing, play, paying women a decent amount. So you have Lyon in France and Wolfsburg in Germany, and then a bunch of teams around them slowly growing up. And getting professional leagues that are, or professional teams, not necessarily leagues that are decent enough counters to the NWSL, which has grown up in America at that point and is pretty clearly the best league in the world. But there are teams that could easily step in and maybe beat them. So that's happening by the early 2010s. Quick question Is any of that displaced into, like, is any of that partly driven
2: by just the displacement of some, like, sports? like like we have talked about like the rise of super teams and investment just like yeah. swamping and distorting regional leagues and like rivalries fall yeah. apart is some of the uptake of women's football being driven by the fact that like well you can't have a good men's football club anymore because right, exactly. like there's
3: like five of those allowed so so Right, so you look at Lyon in France. Lyon is typically one of the better men's team in French football history. They will win the league every so often, like they're they're good. They are in a league where um Middle Eastern investors bought Paris Saint-Germain, one of the bigger teams in Paris, and just channeled huge amounts of money into making that the very best team in the in the world. So, Lyon went from maybe winning, you know, two or three championships a decade to being in a league where Paris Saint-Germain wins nine championships in a row. So, if Lyon wants to get, uh, wants to get ahead somewhere, the women's league is a perfectly good opportunity, and Lyon wins, like, six or seven, uh, European Champions Leagues in a row on the women's side, um... Wolfsburg in Germany, Germany has been dominated by Bayern Munich in a similar way, where they're not like taken over by foreign investors, but they are a team that has won like a dozen German league titles in a row. While Wolfsburg is probably not going to win a championship on the men's side, but they can win championships on the women's side. What started happening in the past five years? A little, a little further than that, but around the 2019 World Cup, uh, and a little before, especially in England, is that those giant men's teams, the super rich ones, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, these teams have all decided, or these clubs have all decided, well, why are we getting beat on the women's side? We want to invest fair too. So now you have basically gone from a situation where five years ago the best leagues in the world, or the, the US League was definitely the best league in the world, there were other good teams. Now at this Women's World Cup, the US League is still very good. It's still possibly the best in the world, but the traditional five best leagues in European football, uh England, Germany, France, Spain, and Italy, all have invested a huge amount in their women's teams. Barcelona, which is one of the biggest teams in European soccer, that's where Messi played, to go back to him. They now have by far the best team in uh, in European soccer. They've won the last few Champions League. They've scored like 300 goals to three or something a couple of years ago. It was like they've run rampant over Spain, but Real Madrid, their longtime rivals have said, okay, we can't let ourselves be beat up by Barcelona on the women's side. We have to invest our own stuff. So now Real Madrid is also building a women's super team. Uh, I would say the English League is possibly the one that has caught up to the NWSL. They have... Possibly more superstars. I don't know about the the overall quality of your average player, but they have possibly more superstars playing for your big traditional powers of Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, Manchester United, Manchester City. Uh, Liverpool is coming up. Spurs are coming up. Like these are these are the big six in uh, English football, and they're becoming the big six in women's football as well. So you have a situation where the U.S. is no longer the center of the universe, and this has been fast. Real Madrid did not have a team like five years ago. They bought a team from somebody else. They bought a te- like a random little Spanish football club that was, uh I don't, I don't it was not attached to a major men's club. It might've been attached to a minor men's club, but they just like said, you know, here's a few million bucks. Give us your team and your slot in the, in the league and they'll be Real Madrid now. And that they took that, uh, ability, or they they, to, they took that deal, and Real Madrid is now a super team. They're now one of the biggest teams. Five years ago, that didn't exist. The Portland Thorns have a longer history of success than Real Madrid's women's team, but Real Madrid has a whole bunch of money and a willingness to be really good at soccer. Um, so, when you have all these, these teams doing well, now you get this situation where going into the Women's World Cup All of the Western European powers that are the big traditional powers in men's soccer, the ones who have been stomping the United States for the last hundred years, uh, with a few notable exceptions, um, they now have women's leagues and women's teams that are dramatically catching up to the U.S. women. They are all there are also other countries where having their players have more opportunities to go to a variety of different, increasingly professionalized leagues, get better, get more physical, get more, uh, get more skills, get more tactically astute. Like you look at the way that these teams were played, uh, were playing in this women's world cup, almost all of them were smart, almost all of them had. Good tactical plans. They might not have had the ability to compete physically. They might not have had the skill or the players. But you don't see matches like the thirteen 0 drubbing that uh, the U.S. gave Thailand four years ago. Uh, the biggest, the biggest win I think was seven nothing, which is a thing that happens in the men's World Cup. Like that's I remember Germany beat Saudi Arabia in 2002. I think eight to one. So this is like. This is like a level of competition that's roughly equivalent, and this is an extremely new development. And on the field, you see it where, in 2019, the U.S. women's national team was bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, more skilled than everybody they played except England. They would just run rampant over any other team. Uh, England was basically the only one that could begin to match their physicality, and England very nearly beat them. I think they should have, other than some some VAR bullshit. Um but now all, every team has that every team is big every team is physical the us still has like some advantages because this is kind of how they play they want to have these big physical teams but they're not they're not like just winning because of this Uh, And there's there's a whole history of like ways that the U.S. has been forced to adapt here and so on. Um, But you also look at England. England played Nigeria in the round of 16. Nigeria played better. Nigeria should have won. The English were like, we're going to boss this team. And Nigeria was like, no, we're going to boss you. And they could. They did. They just didn't manage to quite get the goal. And then they lost in penalties, which was unfortunate. That that would have been very good for my anti-colonial World Cup rooting plans. But, yeah, the same thing happened with the U.S. They've been used to pushing these teams around. They did not push Portugal around. They did not push the Netherlands around. And Sweden has always been one of the teams that could compete with them. And they eventually knocked them out. So uh, just because I want to like
2: hit, I want to talk briefly about some NBA stuff. I I think just to like closing thoughts on where the U S women's national team finds itself now. Like, do you come away from this feeling like, okay, this was, this, this was an anomaly or do you like for all these reasons, just outlined has the ground shifted and maybe the, maybe the anomaly was like the dominance.
3: Okay, so all of this is kind of like set up for how the cultural discussion exists, but the simple fact is the U.S. women's national team was coached poorly and played poorly. Like after all that, they, you're just gonna they did not. The coach? <laughs> yeah, um, this, this no, is, like I vodka, said, they. Right? Yes, Vlaka Andronovsky, who was the coach who uh, – Jill Ellis, who won the championships in 2015 and 2019, retired, and they did not, like, go to her coaching tree and pick out, like, the next assistant. They did a big search. They picked a guy who had had a good amount of success in the NWSL. He, he seemed to be a U.S. – the U.S. Uh, Football Federation, whatever, the USSF. Uh, Sounds like you brought consultants right? in. Yeah, there. there, This was like a wide-ranging search to find, try to find the best person. The player signed off at them. He seems a genuinely nice guy, but at both the Olympics and the World Cup, he tried to play without a midfield. Like, there's, it's, it's really strange. Uh, (laughs) So, as I mentioned, the U.S. women's national team typically won by power, and they were they were bigger, stronger, faster, and. Uh, like in the two thousands, you would have Abby Wambach, who's this battering ram of a striker that you just hoof the ball out of her head and good things will happen uh this was kind of the way they played like grid and grind Gr- make up uh, make everything win through physicality. It doesn't actually matter like how good your plan is, you're just gonna be stronger um. They got whipped in 2007 by Brazil and the individual brilliance of Marta and just overall skill of the Brazilian team. In 2011, they couldn't beat Japan in the final because Japan had a beautiful free-flowing passing game and they just passed it. The the U.S. did not have the ability to break that down and Japan eventually won in penalties. What Jill Ellis brought was a free-flowing modern tactical system that the U.S. didn't just win by being bigger and stronger. They also played really nice football. They would, you know, pass the ball. They would play like a short passing direct game, get the ball to the wings. That was really entertaining to watch. This has not been the case with Vlatko. Vlatko has been playing, has been like halfway setting up like he wants to play that way, but also ending up putting the players in a position where the best they could do would hoof hoof the ball forward to Abby Wambach, except they don't have Abby Wambach anymore. Uh, so at the Olympics and at this world cup, they just got overrun in the midfield. They couldn't get the ball between their defense to their forwards. And then when the forwards got it, they were not in good position to score and also incredibly unlucky at scoring, uh, The U.S. expected goals was over twice what they actually scored, which at that point probably suggests that their striker was not putting the ball in the net like she should have. And uh, that's, I think, one of the big things that the coach did wrong was sticking with Alex Morgan when it was clear that she was no longer able to, or for whatever reason at this tournament, was not scoring the ball. So... Yeah, you had this this version of the U.S. Women's National Team where they were not quite being physical the way that they had had success with, and they were not quite being tactical and skilled in the way that they had success with. They were kind of doing nothing. And this is why Carly Lloyd was getting pissed off. This is why most people who are, like, dedicatedly watching the matches, not just the results, but also the style that they were playing, was just not what they'd become accustomed to. Um and that, that mostly lies in the coach. There is one aspect of the story that I just have not heard people talking about that much, which is that two of the U.S.'s best players were out injured. Um, most teams had good, really good players out injured. The Netherlands lost their by far their best player, Vivian Miedema. England is without Beth Mead, who is one of the best players at the European Championships. Like There have been a lot of long-term injuries, particularly to knees in women's football in the past couple of years, that it's concerning people are people are not exactly sure what's causing it if it's like a physical structure issue if it's the way the cleats are oh, funny. If, i feel
2: like this discourse happened in women's basketball like yeah there's you know, 10 years ago
3: uh i feel like it was like when the wnba started and you had like rebecca lobo just going from one of the best players in the universe to not being able to play anymore um So yeah, there 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 is something going on with knees, but the U.S. is missing Katerina Macario, who is the player that I have heard whispers about. You know. Macario is coming. Macario is coming. Look, Smithers, it's Macario. Um, she's she's a Brazilian-American who has, like, the great Brazilian flair. She plays for Lyon in France, one of the biggest teams. She's incredible for them. She got an ACL injury. She's not going to show up at the World Cup until she's 27 at earliest, when she was, like, the great hope of U.S. football. Uh, they also have Sam Mewis out, injury, out injured, who was possibly their best player in 2019 and like another big powerful midfielder who maybe could have helped with that. Uh so yeah, that's that's part of it but it's they have really good players. They should have played better. The fact that they lost to Sweden is not like inherently the surprise. The fact that they looked so bad especially in the group stage with the players that they have that they only scored uh four goals in the entire tournament with the level yeah. of players that they have. Uh, this is what's really surprising. And this is what's like, this is what was freaking Carly Lloyd out. This is what was freaking uh, most observers out. Uh, so, like, yeah, I think getting their star players back, getting a coach who has a midfield, uh, these things will help the US be contenders in the women's world cup. They're still very big and strong and, and fast. Like these things are, these things are all major advantages in sports. Uh, but for whatever reason, they weren't playing to take advantage of that. Um, and yeah, it's some of it is like arrogance. Some of it is like people getting excited when, you know, the dynasty ends when, when, uh, when Rome falls, but some of it is just that they did not take advantage of the personnel that they had in the way that they should have, and whoever they hire next is probably going to be asked to rebuild their midfield because they also played like this in the Olympics two years ago, which I watched. They looked terrible. They they looked like they were expecting a switch to come on, and that switch never came on. Um very very Lakers like. Uh, There's your segue. <laughs> yeah, though um, I guess you know for,
2: for me one of the things I, I've been eager to talk about since this since this broke and I don't know Patrick if you if you find this as entertaining as I do but the 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 meltdown of the relationship between James Harden and Daryl Morey I think <laughs> just cracked me up.
0: Yes. Well, just I mean what, the Sixers are just such a such an odd team over the last decade, right? Like there is like probably no team more inherently fascinating than the arc of the Sixers like over the last decade between like the experiments and <laughs> drafting like poor Joel Embiid, right? Like like you know like it's just a an oddball thing. It, and yet like this is what James Harden does, right? Like and and even if he has legitimate grievances, like the way he went out of the rockets like five years ago was was like famously horrible. Didn't he like intentionally
2: Oh god, I is this like the am- fat suit thing? Yeah
3: like where he was like just sort of like
0: I don't know I don't know how to move on a court I'm anymore so out of like shape. Shape.
2: oh
3: yeah so, he just uh, he James, wanted out. James Harden is the embodiment of the Homer Simpson quote about if you hate your job you don't strike. You just half ass it for the rest of your life. (laughs) Except when you, except when you have a player who's very good at basketball, half assing it on the court, it's one of the most embarrassing things that you have ever seen. And so, like, he did that with the Nets. He did that with the Rockets. He's going to try to do it with the Sixers. He says he's not even going to show up, which is not half assing it. But, you know, given his history, him showing up and being played and doing extremely poorly, like, the polite way to put it is that this is a man who needs his motivations to be in check to really perform at his best. Uh, and the mean way to put it is that he's a whiny little bitch.
2: <laughs> I mean, this is this is the thing. Like, and, and to a an degree, like his play style is always sort of like dovetailed with the latter, right? Where, like, when he was at his most productive, it was also I've gotten really good exploiting rules yeah. and the way officials are calling games. And when that, yeah. like you know, this this was kind of how he becomes such a the greatest player in the uh, greatest player in the NBA. Was it the most inspiring type of greatness uh, <laughs> in the NBA? I don't know. Like probably not. But the thing that's so funny to me here is that, as I understand it, like the the beef here because he when he he basically threatened to burn the building down. Doesn't trust. Doesn't trust. Jer- Let Morley. me repeat. Let me repeat. Uh, like
0: he's doing a performance. I mean, like he. This is very calculated.
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: Do you have the quote? So,
0: oh, here. So, let, let me. I'll, I'll pull it. Because he talking.
2: says, like, Dar- like I will not be part of an organization that has Daryl Morey at the head of it or something like that. It was <sighs> like, I, like if he if he's here, I'm not. Uh, so, uh, st-
3: so last year he took less money. In order to help the 76ers sign his buddies. Correct. And Daryl Morey's buddies. They signed PJ Tucker. They got, they, they improved their role players around the margins in order to create a contender. And the Sixers were a contender. They messed up pretty badly. Maybe a fake in the <laughs> yeah, but until, until yeah. their two best
0: players decided to essentially no show in like the final two games of their series. The quote is yeah. Daryl Morey is a liar and will never be part of an organization that he's a part of. Pause. Let me say that again Daryl Morey is a liar And I'll never be part of an organization that he's a part of I mean that
2: is about as <laughs> and, and this is like Basically an NBA marriage right Like Daryl Morey yeah. looked at James Harden And it's been hard eyes his entire career It's yes. like this right. is a guy- Irrationally so right like this has been the, Harden's biggest champion At
0: the lowest like Harden is a like Great regular season player and then has Some serious low lights in the Postseason and no matter what Daryl Morey's like, that's my boy. Bring him well, in. But, like. the original,
3: but no, this isn't this. Is, it goes back even further, right? So when Daryl Morey took over the Rockets, the Rockets were getting out of the Yao Ming, Tracy McGrady era, and they had, like, pretty well fallen apart. They were a bad team. Daryl Morey takes over. He's, he's like, basically doing the same sort of thing that the Sixers would do with the process. I need that one star. If I have a superstar, I can build anything. And he goes through several well, people. He, and he was his like, deputy, right? Yeah, I believe so. Um, And eventually he lands on James Harden and gets this incredible deal from uh, the Thunder in order to land James Harden. And then Daryl Morey and James Harden are, you know, best bros forever. As the Rockets become contenders, make like four Western Conference finals. And Harden is like his... Morey and Mike D'Antoni, like, rebuild the entire roster to be around Harden exploiting the teeniest little things that Harden can exploit. And they're like, oh, we want a guy who can—he's a tall point guard. He can pass across the— pass across the floor will surround him with three point shooters oh now he's going to dribble 500 times and take a step back three will surround him with defenders who could also take a step back three in case he Who can also take a three in case he the iso
2: ball style was maybe one of the worst things i've ever seen like just it was the least it was excruciating to watch when he was that just
3: like dribbling between his legs sixty times as the shot clock winds down, and you know he's going to take the step back. It's just exactly which dribble he's taking the fucking step back on, is yeah. Well, it's just fa- it's fascinating because his performance
0: was so uninspiring at the end of it. I mean, like just like he the highest of highs, right? He had that game where he had, like 42-45 points, like unbelievably, like so, so much fun to watch, and it was and then James the Harden that is city, back, baby. There what I mean, and also kind of undeniable, like what he had, like two, but they weren't, I don't know if they were back to back, but like two incredible games. That was a Celtics series, right? Um, and like just incredible dominant games when Embiid still lingering from an injury, like that's been his kind of bugaboo for a bunch of times in the postseason. Um, and then just ended as though they both, like, didn't want to finish the scrimmage. Um, so it is not as though Harden going into this moment is like, remember me? Remember James Harden's like, yeah, I do. And I remember you walking (laughs) across the floor, like not wanting to go into a defensive posture, like against the Celtics. And I, so it's just, he's at a really weird spot in his career because I don't know, like ultimately he plays well with Embiid. He should probably stay there. Where is he going to go? What team wants to give up like real assets for, he was trying to get, make it back to the Rockets. I believe like was part, was part of his plan. Here, and I so, just don't see where, here, where he fits in the league right now for like who
3: wants James Harden. He he initially flirted with the Rockets, and they, this was like potentially their big free agent signing because the Rockets were like the only team with cap space. And they, yeah. they have an owner and a front office that's gotten really impatient with their rebuilding, which I think is going to be kind of a disaster as – Uh, I don't think they have the players to not be rebuilding anymore, but regardless, they decided they wanted to get Fred Van Vliet and Dylan Brooks, uh, who are not 33 years old or whatever. And this is, this, this is a a choice. It's a, it's probably a better choice than Dave's Harden, but they have to spend that money. Those are the rules of the NBA. So you may as well get pretty good, pretty young players. Um, so then Harden was like, I want to go to the Clippers. Only the Clippers. I'm putting in a trade demand to only right, go to right, the right, Clippers. Right, right. And the Clippers have jack shit to trade. Like, they're not trading They Kawhi gave or. away
0: everything for that window they tried to open for themselves. Yeah. And, like, none of it's worked out. Got a brand new stadium and, like, jack shit to show for it from it's a, a place to Just-
2: Yeah. <laughs> Look, the the, the, the the wealthiest equipment manager who has ever lived uh is just living the dream right now. <laughs> just won't so, include
3: James Harden. So So this is a thing that both Harden and Lillard and KD had when he made his trade request last summer, is that the teams they want to be traded to, in order to actually trade for them, then they're not that great of teams anymore. The Clippers would probably have to give up Paul George Clippers don't want to give up Paul George for James Harden. The Clippers don't have really anything else that they could trade or they could just, like, tear down everything except these three stars, which is what the Nets did to get James Harden, and that almost worked. But, uh, yeah, that well, that's a whole soap opera. But, like, the market has been set for what you manage to get for an NBA superstar, and that market will... Mostly nuke the other team, unless it happens to be at the exact sweet spot of having had like a bunch of good draft picks that are now becoming stars, but you maybe want to get rid of a few of them just to like clear out the rotation. Basically, Memphis. Memphis is the team that could trade for a superstar and not be completely fucked. Every other team, Lillard wants to go to the Heat. Yeah, the Heat made the finals. That's great. The Heat don't have assets. The Heat have Tyler Hero. I'm not trading Damian Lillard for Tyler Hero. Well, and this is like, and I think the other
2: part here is, is Harden still a player where it's like, and it's time to give away the store for yeah, James no, Harden. That's, and that's a, like some of the anger here seems to be because Harden picked up his picked up the option, right? Like he picked up his option, yeah. which also basically means I am setting the market my, for myself up here. Like this is this is now this is now the negotiation that has to happen because he doesn't want to be on the market where it's like what's your actual value right now. He, the best thing for him to do <laughs> is take the, take the take the option, which is great. Right. But then like it does get a little rich when you turn around. And I know to a degree, all these contract dis- disputes have an element of theater to it, right? Like it you like players have to look as if they're like, I am ready to. Not only blow up the building, but cost myself tens of millions of dollars in the process of finding this out. I'm, you know, are you ready to die? Because I am (laughs) there. That's 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 part of it. But I do think there's there's also an element of like. Especially, I think, for for a player in hard position of like one, the whole country saw that you're maybe not the guy you were and not the guy that you still conceive yourself
3: as. Or worse, he is the guy that he was. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, that secretly always has been. But
0: what he's thirty three too, right? Like he, like he is hey, hitting look, a critical thirty three. Your
2: best years are <laughs> ahead of you. 38, thirty
0: eight. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that it's that stage of an NBA player where, and you see this with a lot of players, where they they have to accept. Are they willing to accept a different role? Are they willing to change their play? Right and. A lot. You see, we have seen ample evidence of players unwilling to do that, and it's like, will there be a team just desperate enough well, to, like, I don't know, we'll sell tickets if James Harden shows up. See, I don't know if we're going to win any games.
3: The, but the thing is, Harden has done that. He went for being the the king of iso ball with the Rock. Well, before that, he was like. A really exciting point guard with the Rockets. Before that, he was a pretty generic so- scorer with the Rockets. Then he went to the King of Iso Ball. Then he got traded to the Nets, and they wanted him to be a point guard again. He was playing at an MVP level there. He probably could have been an MVP apart from an injury and a champion apart from all the injuries that they had. Um, and even still, you know, people will talk about KD's shoe size stopping them from from having beaten the Bucks. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite as sold on that narrative, but, like, yeah, they were that close. And then the next season, he kind of takes a little step back, in part because the Nets are imploding and he doesn't seem to want to deal with Kyrie's bullshit, and who would? Uh, and then he gets to the Sixers and he changes again to be like, okay, I'm going to be Joel Embiid's wingman. So, like, he can yeah. actually do that he just also wants to be paid like a superstar and also wants to not show up in the playoffs hey, uh, same <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah this is this is I don't really think weird but. It's, it is it is part of it too like
2: to, the funny part of this is like to a degree it's like these deals are structured so you get paid either way right it's like the cherry yeah. on top is like I want to go play for a team I like and,
3: and can compete it's like but, sorry <laughs> So so one of the big stories of the NBA in the last five, six years is the so-called player empowerment era, where it seems like players are just saying, I want to go play for this team, and the entire league is like, okay, we'll make that happen. And I have typically found this fairly overrated, like it's happened at times, but it's happened in ways that have tended to make sense for both the player and the team trading him. Uh, Like the Rockets had been exhausted, the Rockets... The the Harden Rockets were done. Uh, The Russell Westbrook experiment had failed. And everyone getting out, D'Antoni leaves, Westbrook leaves, and Harden leaves. Like, this worked for the Rockets. The Rockets got their draft picks. It was, there might have been things that could have worked better. They maybe were a little impatient. Whatever. The Rockets made a trade that set them on the path to being able to rebuild. Uh, What seems
0: to align with teams understanding windows close and like shutting it is better than like a couple extra years of sadness.
3: Right. So then you, in the past year or two, you have these players who are like, Oh, well, James Harden got to go where he wanted. Well, Anthony Davis got to go where he wanted. Well, Kawhi managed to get Paul George to go with him. That means I can do anything. So Kevin Durant last year signs a contract for four years and then immediately demands a trade. Like (laughs) you are contracted. Demanding a trade doesn't mean anything. That's just you saying you're unhappy and that's fine. You can say that and the team can accept that or not. The team can look for trades or not. And they decided not to until Kyrie blew the whole thing up later. Uh, Evan KD ended up getting the trade that he wanted in a way that might have kind of ruined the Suns. Uh, I guess we'll see. But this is not a team that I have a ton of trust in for, for next year. Um so Harden opts into his contract thinking that this will get him more of an extension later. And he's like, wait a minute. I want to be traded. No, you don't have that leverage anymore. You had the, you had the leverage before you got rid of it. Uh, John Hollinger just wrote a column about this on the athletic today that it's about like how Harden and Lillard have... like, gone into less and less leverage over their situations yeah. and they're like i want to be traded to this one particular team because this is what i think will make me happy as a human being and that other team no doesn't make sense it does not make sense for miami and portland to try to get into a trade together for damian lillard it probably doesn't even make sense for a three-way trade for miami to get those assets from somebody else because if Miami trades Bam Adebayo, they're no longer the team that Damian Lillard wants to play for. But Bam Adebayo is the asset that is Damian Lillard shaped. So, you know, these these players are suddenly realizing that like the player empowerment era was probably kind of a fluke the entire time. There were a bunch of there were a bunch of conditions that happened to be met in this one particular moment that allowed for players to get what they wanted in the way that they wanted in a way that they thought would be for real and it was not and you still have players under contract and those those contracts are more important than the players feelings and that's providing some good entertainment
0: that is true um let's get to a couple questions before we get out of here
3: one Uh, more nba thing yeah hit me we need the witch is dead Rob and I need to celebrate Mark Jackson being off the NBA. <laughs> Mama, there goes that man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: uh, oh. Patrick, Patrick, were you ex- exhausted of that of that broadcast booth as Rowan and I were? I don't know that I was that personally invested in uh, it to the degree that the two of you are having
0: the reaction.
2: <laughs> I, so I think it's like if the, I think the problem is. So I think there's two things. I was thinking. I was talking about this with my with my dad the other day. Because I used to really like this broadcast booth, and I think part of it was, I think probably their finest hour came in the bubble. Because, first of all, that's where the stream of consciousness shit really worked well, where you had Jeff Van Gundy. Because the entire thing had an air of unreality. Like... Of course, it makes sense that like they're basically recording a podcast in the middle of a playoff game. Sure, like <laughs> we've got we've got projections of fans on the walls here, and we're all like huddled inside our homes, hoping not to die, uh, and we're watching we're watching NBA basketball. This is this is great and weird, but I think they're, their their Stadler and Waldorf bit was like it was it was good. It it could be like. You know, really, really fun to listen to and whatever. But like, this is this is the year more than any, any other. Where I was like, I, are they watching the games. Is is Mark <laughs> Jackson watching the games? because <laughs> yeah. I just be like, you just it was so detached. And occasionally you'd hear him mutter something about it's about sense of urgency and concentration. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Love this. <laughs> Love the grind core, uh, like coaching aesthetic. Sure. Uh, what's that got to do with anything here? And so, yeah, so,
3: so Mark Jackson's whole thing is that he turned any kind of analysis into a moral analysis. Yes. And this drove me fucking crazy. He had good chemistry with Van Gundy. When Van Gundy was driving the conversations, he would follow along and that could be entertaining. Um, But he'd turn all these things into moral questions. Jeff Van Gundy's ADHD brain of a squirrel would eventually be like, oh, yeah, I'd love to discuss that. Um, And I I recognize that that's weird uh, talking in a podcast where we've talked about the morality of women's sports and college sports and so on. Uh, But yeah, yeah, we're not on the... It's good. Yeah. (laughs) We're also not on ESPN describing a game as it's happening. Um, But yeah, Mark Jackson would be like, oh, it's not just about taking a three-pointer, and if you can make the three-pointer, that's good for your team, and if you can't, it's not. It's about the moral aesthetics of whether the three-pointer is good for the game. It's about embracing the grind. Are you going to be the player that you can by diving for the ball? And that's that's not nothing, but this is like his only lens, and it's also particularly weird from a guy who's a famous backstabber. Like, he started a locker room mutiny against Jerry Sloan and John Stockton when he was in Utah. Wow. He, he was like played favorites with the entire golden state warriors team. He like snuck Steph Curry into a a faith healing thing uh, to, in order to try to heal Curry's ankle, which apparently worked good job, Mark Jackson. (laughs) But like Curry did not know that this was going to be happening. Like, Curry did not consent to be faith-healed. Uh, I didn't know that story Do any at all. of us,
0: Rowan, do any of us consent to be faith-healed, or does it just yeah. happen to us?
3: I, I think many people do. Like, like, when you take them to church, actually, they tend to know what's <laughs> happening. I've seen Justified, okay? I know that this mm-hmm, happens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's...
2: That wow, well, that I didn't know that that background wasn't played, but it is just it was such a it's such a goofy uh, style of broadcast. Because also, I think part of it is the whole like it's about you know uh, it's all about hard work and 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 being on that grind. And it's like, Mark, some of these guys are really fucking good. Like I'm sorry, yeah. but like some of these guys don't have to work that hard. Like they just don't. And I'm sorry, but they're just that dominant.
3: Or or the hard work that they put in means that other people's hard work becomes irrelevant.
2: Like, yeah. 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 Like, is,
3: basketball has become a game about exploiting the tiny little inefficiencies. And with that tiny little inefficiency, is Steph Curry raining threes? <laughs> like, yeah, it the defense can be really good. It's great. It's, it's no, great they should have just Aaron spent more time in, in the gym.
2: You gotta, yeah, you gotta get mean, back in the lab after after stuff, you know. Goes. They
3: they just need to they just need to believe in Jesus, and those threes will stop getting hit. Um, but yeah, as it, I I have disliked Jackson immensely. Like there are, there are times when it has worked, but. Uh, getting rid of van gundy is i think probably a, a somewhat necessary evil like he's that was that he was could. Me. I, I, I
2: like van gundy but one he wasn't great this past this past thing and if it yeah. like cleared the lane for the trench run on jackson i was like all right well
1: <laughs> yeah
3: we so so now we're getting doc rivers at Doris Burke i was not following basketball that much when doc rivers was a television guy so i'm just praying we're not getting jackson i've heard people say he
2: was really good i've heard people say he he was great in the booth uh couldn't be worse
3: yeah doris burke is very good to have in the booth just as a person who talks i think her analysis is not always like the deepest but like That's probably that that's like the third thing on my list of important things for the booth. The first is like, are they clear? Can they talk well? She amazing. Are they entertaining? Yeah, she's good. Uh and then is the analysis good? Well, it's not the worst. Yeah. Uh and like this is this has a lot of potential. And just they needed to fucking mix it up. It had been a decade of these 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 chuckleheads. And um ESPN has also just needed to mix up their announcers like that the level of analyst on national nba games is oddly low especially considering how many good ones there are on league pass Dude, like, so
2: hey speaking of league pass like get with that stacy king
0: chicago bulls action like
2: weirdly compelling nba commentary Make Stacey
0: king, elevate stacy king i mean i would not want to lose him but like let's get stacy king in a couple of
2: no i think we protect him from national exposure because people would be like this yeah. guy's so weird and they would ch- they would change him do you rob yeah. do you think
0: like do you think we could get stacy king to come on this podcast oh, I doubt it. do you think that's attainable are we like is he low enough and are we high
2: enough Like a request like that could make it through, probably not. But you know, you got—you'll never know. (laughs) You'll never, you know. I'm not sure I can make. I would have to be a special
0: main feed. I can't say like, hey, uh, behind the paywall, Stacey King. Do you (laughs) You want to come talk to some?
2: (laughs) You got to think like Steph Curry on the moon. You know, that's Mm -hmm. that's the image Mm -hmm. you got to have in your uh, have in your head. Mm -hmm. Just like Mm -hmm. we'll get Stacey King. Look, (laughs) if I can get on a Home Depot Halloween press
0: event. Why can't I get Stacey King on this sports podcast?
3: Well, I see the skeleton behind you. I understand now.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's, it's, uh, so, I, I, dream big, Rob. Dream big. <laughs> We're going to dream big as we get closer to the start of the. When does the NBA season start? End oh, of October. Totally yeah. Okay. All right. We got time. Talk to talk to Stacey King's management. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you can send questions in to questions at remapradio.com. Uh, dot com. Uh, we got uh, one in from Waz, dear remap. What sport would you like to watch be professionally played with the normal ball swapped with another sports ball?
3: I got. I, I saw this one and I had something instantly come into my mind. I want hockey played with the the curling thing. Oh my god! <laughs> Just,
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's
2: very good. Um, I think you would see people's feet ripped off. Like if if those curling stones got actual velocity. I, I,
3: okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to watch this the first time it happens. I want to watch it after three years of people getting used to it, adapting the sticks, figuring mm. out how to play around mm-hmm. it. But just mm-hmm. like yeah, like action curling. Let's Love see it. what. Let's see how this rolls.
0: See, my mind it, I, it went less from swapping a, a ball from other sport to like, what if we just made the football half the size? Just make it <laughs> tiny. Just like can they play with it with a nerf ball? You know, like the nerf ball, the just the fucking
2: fins. The- <laughs> yeah,
0: so they could just get it like a hundred yards down the field. Like just go, like just let Jamar Chase rip it down the track and fields, and basically, just see how far you can rip it. Basically, lawn
2: darts at this point. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, can we play? Can the NFL? Uh, you know, look, I don't, I don't like watching the um. What is it? Not the All Star Game. What's the the bullshit that they do? Probably What's all- their- Yeah. The Pro Bowl, yeah. Can they just play five hundred instead? You know, just like
3: just like whip that <laughs> get, ball in the air. Didn't did um, they already basically change to that?
2: Yeah, they've tried to switch to the, just like the uh, skills like
0: competition as opposed yeah. to
2: yeah, skill competition. Well, I think they, they they wanted to be more like the the NBA All Star, but even that now is kind of kind of washed. Like it's these these events are these these events are hard to make interesting. I think for me, here's the problem: there are very few situations in which the shape and characteristics of a football do not Mm -hmm. make other games a little (laughs) more interesting soccer with a football soccer with a football, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> real, real intriguing, real intriguing dynamics. The angles like are just my, completely tossed my out. My football coach, uh, m- like when he was coaching Jim or like when you were in his uh, like weightlifting program, like on the days where it was just like, let's go fuck around and play around. He had a thing. It's like it's a flicker ball day. Basketball footballs. And you know what? I'll be damned if that game was not fan fucking tastic. Because you're whipping. Because a quarterback is required to he to get a decent pass to go like twenty thirty yards. Anyone can get a get a pass zipping down down the length of a basketball court, but like trying to play the angles with a football off the glass—that's a game. <laughs>
0: Uh, we'll just do one more question. This was a bit long, but it's a, it's a good setup. Um, Hey, remapping players, uh, James here as a foundation member. I've been sticking, uh, I've been catching up on the episodes I'd missed at that tier and was listening to the sticking to sports episode where Robin Patrick wax at length about Nikola Jokic. I don't know if this has been brought up in the question bucket yet, but the idea of a sports superstar, one who is built different and built specifically to excel in this particular arena, despite an apparent desire to be doing anything else reminded me almost to a T of another recent generational athlete. While injuries prevented him from achieving the same heights as Jokic, the name that came to mind most readily during your discussion was Andrew Luck. He was more or less anointed as the savior of not only the Indianapolis Colts franchise, the heir apparent to the departed Peyton Manning, but possibly, alongside number two uh, overall pick, uh, Robert Griffin III, the savior of the sport itself. Uh, in a you-can't-make-this-up bit of serendipity, both Luck and Manning's first-ever in-game passes as professional NFL quarterbacks during the preseason, it should be noted, went for touchdowns. Luck came out of Stanford with the build, arm strength, and intelligence to dominate at the quarterback position for years to come. He led the Colts to the playoffs his rookie year and back again the year after. The comeback he orchestrated against the Chiefs in the AFC wildcard uh, game his second season. Down 38-10 early in the third, the Colts won 45-44 in large part due to his play. I remember that game. It was incredible. Yet regardless of all that, his, his whole demeanor suggested that he would be perfectly fine, maybe even happier, not playing football at all. That he played because he was good at it, not, but not because it brought him any particular joy and that the league was determined to make him its face, even if that was the last thing he wanted. His pressers hinted at other interests and other pursuits, which are anathema to an industry and a fan base that wants its stars to live, eat, and breathe the sport. Full disclosure, I was employed by the NFL Network during Luck's career, and the conversations among my coworkers were that he felt like he was too smart to be playing football, especially given what we know about head injuries in the sport. And so, when Luck did eventually retire, it was more the timing of the decision, which unfortunately was leaked during halftime of a preseason game, forcing him to address the media in its wake, unprepared, rather than the next day when he might have been better prepared with his responses, rather than the decision itself. I think he always saw it as a job, not a career, and maybe in a way that it's, it's for the best that he didn't achieve the Olympian heights of hoisting the Lombardi Trophy. Had he done so, it might have prolonged his career alongside his rapidly departing joy." Thank you so much for keeping the podcast alive. You've all brought warmth, humor, and so much more to my daily life. Fuck capitalism. Go home. James. Um, Yes, this was a conversation we had with Jokic about like, if you were just born into the world and you looked at yourself and went, oh no, I'm a basketball player. You might play basketball and excel and be great at it. But what's delightful about Jokic is like seeing him with his horses and like all these, I was like, look at this well-rounded person that has other interests and is okay. Walking away from the game of football and doing anything else.
3: I think the Yonkish stuff is somewhat overrated. Like as someone who adopted the nuggets as her second team, uh, in the last few years, uh, he does enjoy playing basketball. Like this is, The the Nuggets are fun, and they're fun because of Jokic, and he encourages them to have fun. Like, he, he enjoys hanging out with his dudes, and his dudes also happen to be good at basketball. Uh, but, yeah, this is – it was definitely hilarious to watch him just treat, like, all the pomp and circumstance around winning the championship as if it was a distraction from his horse races.
2: <laughs> well and I, and I think, like, where, where Patrick and I came down on this when we talked about it was, like, he plays up his like like first of all like he does the thing where it's like people find it really funny when i'm extremely eastern european in certain ways (laughs) and people play that up and it is very funny (laughs) Uh, but but also like there is there is a lot of evidence that like he likes playing basketball it just does he care about the NBA and all that shit that goes with it that much. And that's, that's a different question. But, and I think like luck is luck was an interesting, similar case where it's like, this guy was, yeah, he was like born to be a quarterback, but also he's born to be other things. And he, that tension seemed hard to reconcile. If y'all should go and listen to, and this is the broader, like, you know, people listening to this, if you're, in, if you're interested in hearing about like Andrew Luck's whole deal, uh, ESPN did a really good – so they ran a piece about him, or maybe it was Sports Illustrated, but they got the writer to come on ESPN The Daily uh, to talk about Andrew Luck, where he is now – how he arrived at the moment to like just walk away from the NFL. It's a really interesting story, and even there, it's not as like cut and dried as like, oh, Luck didn't like playing football as much anymore. No, it, like, huge tensions with his wife over like the injuries and his time.
0: I mean like – I think that's the only, like, one of the only post retirement interviews he's given. Like, this writer yeah. just managed to gain the trust almost on a, a friend level to allow luck to op- open up the entire article. I'm pretty sure it was ESPN. And I'm pretty sure yeah. it's the same guy who writes, like, the regular big dives into the Patriots. Um, I believe it's yeah. that same, same, same reporter. Um, it's incredible. Like, and it gives you a really interesting profile of, like a full person, which is like rarely yeah. what we get a, a sense of um, with these players, and I think <laughs> some are fuller than others, right? Like because I think to you know to to get to that level, you have like many have to give up pursuits of anything else intellectually, personally, professionally to arrive at that stage. I think what was so fascinating about Luck was he didn't give up that stuff along the way. Maybe partially because football came. Just easier to him, like when you are, you have like the, the, like the brain and the, and the body to match. And he, he just never seemed to lose that along the way. But it was not as, it was not as simple as he was getting hurt a lot by
2: a bad O line and then decided to retire like it was a really painful decision for him to to leave because like he was bought in on like being an 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 nfl quarterback but also he saw the cost it's a really like and the interesting thing is that i think you know you come to come to a feature like this and you kind of hope oh things have like where's he come down down with all this and he hasn't right this is the other interesting part of the feature is like Oh, he's, off thri- he's off thriving, Rob, and and sure,
0: like finding other interests, like smart dude, but like it's still an, a piece like tinged with regret.
2: Well, over I think he still lives near the facility, like he still yeah. or, or he did for a long time before he before he left, uh, like Indianapolis. And so, like, there's always that bit like he is at once a guy who was like, I'm an engineer. I know the risk of playing football. I can do other stuff. And also he's a guy who's like, fuck, I miss. I miss being that guy. I miss doing that. Uh, the guy I think actually probably really fits the bill of like, what if you're just fucking great at something, but you maybe don't care as much as people like want the the whole grind mentality. Right. We want greatness to be associated with. And he just really works hard because that's the thing we can all relate to. Well, I could work harder and achieve more. And it's like, yeah, but the thing is, this person's also just great. Tre- <laughs> Trevor Lawrence is someone yeah. who like coming into the draft was like, no. Nah football's not like my whole life it just you know the winning's good but it's not i'm he and that basically was a knock said, against I'm him. Not it was that like, Ugh. right right i'm not, not, really not going to be that guy about for this. you I'm that level. right yeah and and i hats off to him cuz i loved he refused to play the game cuz the easiest thing in the world would have been like winning's the only thing cuz that's what you're that's what you're supposed to give and he was just like i'm not i'm not doing that song and dance and you know there's other guys who are basically like as long as i'm getting paid like it's fine, you know. But, yeah, but the- I want to
0: say I want to say like the, like some of the draft talk about
2: him, like when they,
0: you know, he's got to go interview with like every single team that might be interested in him. Like some of the chatter coming out was like, is he just too smart? Like, is he going to be able to shut that fucking smart brain of his down and just whip that pigskin? You know, like that was some of the chat.
3: Like these guys care too much
0: about other the things. Um, NF-
3: and- NFL draft phrenology is. Just amazing! <laughs> Just the entire culture around like a player—it's considered a red flag for a player to have an interest. Like, yeah. Any doesn't matter. Any any interest—it's considered a red flag if a player like scores a perfect score on their their Wonderlick test. That is, it's basically the the cognitive ability I mean, to test that Trump good? took. Yes. Whatever. <laughs> what if, What if this is too effective of a human being? we don't want that we want we want our easily exploitable group of large people because
2: that's the thing um, right like a ton of people in nFL management are toxic meatheads, and yeah. so you can understand how deeply intimidated they would be if like, oh this guy's smart and he's got other shit in his life. <laughs> how much shit is he going to take from an offensive coordinator who is like just marking time until he gets the head coaching job uh, that his dad used to have. And it's it's basically a fail son uh, Mm -hmm. bouncing from offense to offense.
0: Wait, did you see that um, Doug Peterson's son is like the fourth tight end on the depth chart of the Jaguars? And he, The uh, long snapper for the Jaguars in the first preseason game for this upcoming season uh, had a shoulder injury. So they no no longer had a long snapper. So they basically couldn't do punts and field goals. But apparently one of the ways that you try to smuggle your way, uh, apparently sometimes for maybe not a fail. So I have no idea what Doug Peterson's son is like, but like you learn to be a long snapper. And then maybe you can, like, smuggle yourself onto a team if, you ne- if you're if you not necessarily a fantastic tight end that's going to even make the practice squad. And so, he, like, that's, his yeah. son is out there with a long snapping ability. They didn't ask him to do it very often. But, like, that's the only way he got in the field. And he's, like, no guarantee at all to make, like, the cut based on, like, the athletic piece that I, that I read. But it was a – I was like, huh. So you learn how to be a long snapper so you can have this unique skill that very few people have. And maybe you sneak onto the team that way. And that's how Doug Peterson's son, technically a tight end, ends up on the field in a preseason game. Just weird as shit. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: so, so to go back to the initial question and to, to bring up my other sport that I follow, which is tennis – uh, especially women's tennis, the idea of players being unhappy and not being able to consistently perform in the way they want is like the dominant story of the last five years or so in sort of the that Serena half-retirement era. You have players like Naomi Osaka and Ashley Barty who were easily the best in the world, and they were just like, fuck this, I hate this, uh, and they're gone. Ash Barty did it twice. Osaka has not, like, officially retired, but she just doesn't show up anymore. And she, like, got married and having—I don't know if she got married, but she had a kid. And, you know, she they, they show her, like, traveling around museums and stuff as the Australian Open is going, and she's at the Louvre. And, like, tennis is an especially fascinating sport for two reasons. First, that it's one-on-one. Like, you're not doing this for the love of your teammates. You're, you might, you might enjoy being with your coach. You might have your box that you travel with who are, who are also sort of your friends, but they're not part of the match with you. And the second aspect is that tennis players tend to be discovered at relatively early ages and trained to be tennis, tennis, tennis. And like, you hear, you hear announcers and stuff talking about players and like, there's been a realization in the last five years, especially on the women's side, that, hey, having other interests actually really, 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 really helps. Um, there's there's one player, I think it's Holger Runa, who's uh, one of the the better young men's players. He's like number five in the world or so, who, like, he's just a tennis jock. And you hear, like, his coaches you, – you hear stories about how his coaches have tried to be like, hey, would you like to try watching movies? Would you like to try – wearing fancy clothes. It's like, no, I just want to watch tennis matches, play tennis matches, play tennis video games, like entirely that. And they want him to do more. And this is like completely different from 20 years ago, where I remember Serena and Venus Williams were lambasted by the overall tennis culture because they dared to have other interests and probably because they were not right. Um, But they dared to have these interests in fashion and so on. And, Who are the players who played until they were 40 and were happy with it? Why? It's Serena and Venus Williams. Uh, Whereas all these other players who were the tennis only ones, they like had multiple retirements like Kim Clijsters and Justine Innan. And actually, yeah, it turns out that being into fashion is really helpful just because you don't have your entire life dedicated to something that's an extremely high tension, high anxiety situation.
2: Well, I've always thought like I think it was such a and it goes back to some of those themes of sport follows this arc of like hyper specialization that like has a lot in common with uh you know modern like uh economic practices and such like uh, searching out those efficiencies and like hyper specializing. But like that's not doable for a kid like, because you just don't know like who who that person's going to turn into. You don't know like what is their ceiling or you like, you know, you can create like illusory gains. Like this person's going to be an incredible baseball player. Well, that's because you're pouring training into them at the age of 11. You know what I mean? But like, who knows if they actually have the stuff. It's just that you're, you're pumping up their what appears to be their, their ceiling, but they're still going to hit probably a, a very similar ceiling uh, regardless. But th- this, this whole notion of like, Oh, like by the time you are 10 or 11 years old, you should be on the you should be on the ladder toward professional competition. And Adam Silver's talked about this, right? Like, like talking about the problem of, hey, uh, NBA stars are less happy than they used to be. Like you just notice yeah. like the NBA is full of people who've like made it and they're making big money and are elite stars and the faces of the sport. And a bunch of them are fucking miserable. That's separate from the injury stuff. That is like there's a lot of wear and tear happening to young athletes bodies before they hit their prime because of this pipeline. But there's that second order issue of. You're having 20 year old burnouts crop up more and more in sport, and that's not good for anyone because it's like these are the people who are supposed to be the stars. These are are the people who are supposed to be the, the future. Right. And if they are getting there and saying like, oh, fuck this. I hate this and ghost all, all those potential, you know, performances that we were excited about all that emotional investment interest, all of it's gone.
3: Yeah. And like having better players is good for the league. Like the NBA now is so much better than it was 20, 25 years ago. Like this was just a nadir of professional basketball where it's really fucking fun to watch now. Um, The other thing is that if they've been, like, on this pathway to stardom since they were kids, then they become increasingly detached from reality. They only have their crew. They only have their peers. They only have other people who are rich or the people that they're, like, directly invested in. Uh, So you have, like, John Morant, whatever is going on with his gun fetish. It's... I yeah. where did this come from what does this mean and he wasn't even like necessarily on that track but Kyrie Irving definitely was this is a guy who is completely detached from reality like when you hear Kyrie talk he is someone who probably could be like a very good and well-rounded person but never having been on that track he's just a fucking weirdo and he's a weirdo who's caused actual harm and then really quickly surrounded by ass
2: kissers who lo- lose yeah. that ability to be like dude shut the fuck yeah. up
3: which is what we all need but right right and so like it's astonishing how well-rounded a person lebron james is uh this is maybe one of the best stories in sports because he had every reason to go be like this complete weirdo and he's just a corny dad like that's his personality is uh like he's he's often wrong about things but he's wrong in like a just kind of a a cheerful harmless way usually within a reasonable box yes like <laughs> but one of yeah. many ways
2: he's sort of like pointedly different than jordan uh you know yeah the way to differentiate mm-hmm. himself is like this is a guy who doesn't seem like he's going to be brooding in his palace uh at age 50 60 <laughs> no
0: he's like he's he's trying to win a championship but also like if he can win a championship on the way to just not Materially injuring himself so he can play with his son in the
2: NBA is well. The son was dubious even before, like even before Bronny had like that health scare. Right. Uh, I'm just, I'm just saying, like in the
0: realm of like grand demands to make out of like shaping reality in front of you, I'll take it. Like, You've seen the fi- video like clip
2: a, though of him and his wife being asked what they want for Bronny, right? No. Give us this before we before we close out. Okay. So I I. I can't find it. uh It's not my fingertips. There's a video where they're they're in an interview, and they're asked about what they want for for Bronny. And uh when is this? I don't remember when this was. um
3: Like, is is this as Bronny's getting yeah. ready for college, or it's, it's, uh, yeah, okay, so re- relatively recent. Uh, so so they get the question about like
2: what they want for Bronny, and uh, his wife, wa- his wife Savannah, immediately is like, I just want. I just want to be happy. I want him to like, you know, find his place in the world and be happy. LeBron immediately goes, I want him to play in the NBA. <laughs> and like Savannah's head whips around. Like you just said that. Like I like And it was one of those weird moments where it was like, Oh, here we found it here. We have found like the profound, like this is the area where he's weird is. I want Bronny to come like, you know take over the family business maybe not be as good as me but like I want this us to share this thing and that's important to have a to career me. he wants to come to the games and see his
0: kid and not have that stop in college he wants it to be he comes to the to Lakers stadium or whatever when his kid passes through.
3: Crypto.com arena. I
2: I fucking um, love that people are like, "I'm oh, never gonna stop calling it staple Center." People emotionally bonding yeah. <laughs> with the original like corporate branding. It's always staple Center to it me. It wasn't,
0: you know what I mean? Like it, like those stick around long enough that they lose the associated branding with. Yeah,
2: yeah. It just
3: becomes a name. Well, and and it. It got built to replace the actual classic stadium, and I think it was Staples Center from the start. So it's not like it's not like the Boston Garden or whatever. But like, did you watch LeBron's game where he broke Kareem's record? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And at halftime, he goes and finds his son, and like he's mic'd up, and they get get the whole conversation. And it's like LeBron's like, "I want to show off for my kids. I want to show off for my kids. You guys think I should break the record? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm gonna do it tonight. Yeah, it'll be fun. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh
2: man,
0: Space Uh, Jam is real. (laughs) shit they did make that second
1: movie
0: um Uh, all right well that is gonna do it for this episode of sports uh rowan where if people want to follow what you're up to what you're recording what you're writing about what uh have you uh, gotten uh, gotten up to anything lately you want to promote now is the now is the time
3: god um i am i do my podcast total massacre that's at twitter at total underscore massacre underscore pod uh it is on patreon at patreon.com slash total massacre uh you can just search for total massacre on spotify or apple or whatever and it should show up i haven't done a good job of doing it this summer because uh yeah i'm um i have i have brawny's heart condition um and that flares up sometimes uh that's it's good representation for the the swollen heart people. Um, I don't actually know that Bronny has the same thing that I do, but usually when someone has a heart issue and uh, like is otherwise extremely in shape, it's probably something close to my my hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But that also prevents me from writing writing a whole bunch. But yes, total massacre. I'm also on Three Moves Ahead, uh, which is a podcast that I think Rob has heard of um uh that's at 3ma twitter it's on the idle thumbs network i hear we need to put two um, factor on that
2: fucking twitter account if we have already. <laughs> it's a three three character twitter handle like that's probably worth more than the podcast itself at this point uh, <laughs> yeah. this is this is, this is, Len, this is lens retirement uh,
0: crypto.com we right?
2: presents at 3ma
3: That's yeah. is that where we're headed yeah i uh, i'm on I'm on Twitter at Rowan Kaiser, such as it is. And I am, mm-hmm. I got on, I got on Blue Ski, Thanks to Rob. Uh, I'm Rowan Kaiser at their generic thing there. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't published anything and have no, no immediate plans to. Um, Excellent.
0: Well, hopefully uh, if people enjoyed this, go check out uh, Total Massacre. Uh, there's a bunch of pods If you haven't listened to, you can listen to them now and hopefully get a chance to record uh, more soon. Um, In the meantime, you can follow Remap on Twitter at Remap Radio. Rob, just as an aside, one of my favorite things that you do in your outro is that you mention that we have a Blue Sky account that we have posted absolutely nothing to. (laughs) No, we have. (laughs) We posted once that was like a retweet of me saying, like, I'm so proud that we launched this. Have we done anything other than that? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I'm gonna fix that. It's on my plan for the next couple of weeks.
2: We'll we'll be oh, actually blue sky. <laughs> the only it's only a re, It's only a retweet. <laughs> Spend the last month working with an incredible crew to get at Social on its own two feet. I'm so happy, relieved, and tired from Patrick Lepig at Biski at dot social two months ago. Okay.
0: We got it we got a plan. It's I'm, I'm gonna get into our workflow. But uh you can also uh, watch us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash remap radio, then YouTube at youtube.com slash at remap radio. Uh, this episode is an ad free if you're subscribed for at least $5 per month over remap is wholly owned by us and funded by you. Uh, we don't work at a big corporation anymore. We got paper insurance and podcast hosting. <laughs> Arguably
2: and- no one advice still works for a big corporation. <laughs> well, that's
0: true. That's true. That's true. And look, at this point, we're getting that severance. Uh, we're well below 50% at this point. We're, 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 tra- we're trending downwards and never getting mad. Um, so you can directly support uh, us and the, the future of Remap, and by extension, this podcast by signing up at remapradio.com. Uh, and that'll do it. Fuck capitalism and bear down.